Hey, welcome to Genre Exposure, a film podcast. Join us as we explore the wide world of cinema, broadening our horizons one movie at a time. I'm one of your hosts, Dustin, and as usual, I am here with Jason. Hey, everyone. What's up, my guy? Hey, man. You know, living the dream, watching movies. <laughs> yeah, if you uh, if you look at my letterbox for this month, it, it don't look like I've been watching movies. And me either. I haven't either. <laughs> I, I've barely gotten anything in. It's been, been a rough June, but I, I've hit some in there, so. Nice. I have a couple to talk about today. Oh, okay. Well, today also we are starting the new block all about science fiction films. Yeah. Which is very broad. Uh, I realized as I was preparing my notes for this. Well, it's, it's um, a huge, yeah. super genre, yes. <laughs> uh, which is cool, and I'm glad we're finally talking about it now. So, Yeah, I think we, we've touched on some science fiction adjacent things, mm-hmm. but we've never really just gone into sci-fi. Yeah, full focus. Which is weird. And we're kicking it off with your pick. The Quiet Earth from 1985, directed by Jeff Murphy. I think, what is it, Jeffrey Murphy is how it's credited. Yeah. yeah. When you look him up on IMDb, it's Jeff or Geoff. Or, or, or Geoff, yeah. However you want to say it. <laughs> I say Jeff. <laughs> I like Jeff. Um, but before all that, we're going to do all our usual stuff, talk about what we've been watching lately. Um, random shout out. It'll probably be too late to really engage with this too much by the time you're listening to this, but... Um, June, they always do that uh, June exploitation thing. I think it was it was it F this movie is the people that started it, mm. at, uh, you know, film site. And I think they have a podcast of their own actually now. I'm thinking about it, but uh, if you listen to unsung horrors like us, they always participate and they usually have like a roundup thing at the end of the month of June. Uh, it's one of those cool things where it's like you try to do a movie a day, and they put out like a curated list of like topics and genres for each day. Oh, cool! To sort of like guide you through. I wish I could have done that. Um, super fun. Um. You know, look for it next year. Um, I guess there is a little bit of June left once this episode drops. So, if you've never encountered it before, go go search it up. June exploitation, get in there, man. Nice. Watch some cool movies. I noticed that this year they had a Yakuza day, so that made me happy. Oh, very good. Yeah, but unfortunately, I have been way too busy to participate in a movie a day thing. Same here. I'm storing up all that energy for October. I think I've gotten like three movies in so far this month. Yeah. It's sad. It's really sad. <laughs> I call myself a film podcaster. Yeah, month to month. We'll do better next month. <sighs> yeah. So, that being said, mm-hmm. what have you been watching? Okay. I have a bad one and a good one. Oh, okay. Okay. I think I know what the bad one is based on mm. prior conversations. Yes. Um, the bad one is The Lair. <laughs> uh, new movie by Neil Marshall. Mm-hmm. Love Neil Marshall? Question mark? <sighs> Man, I used to. <laughs> yeah. I used to love No Marshall. He could do no wrong. Um, but you're saying he's wronged. I'm saying he... he <laughs> I, I, I'm here to... I think he's lost it, man. Oh, no. I hope I'm wrong. I hope he has a comeback movie sometime. But his last several films, I just have not cared about. Um, so what was the one before this? Cause I don't think I even saw The that. Reckoning. No, I never watched that either. I, Made it like 25 minutes in and stopped. I remember Michael talked about it. Once. Yeah, he, he said was, it wasn't yeah. worth watching. The Lair literally took me four tries oh, wow. before I got past the half hour mark. I'm surprised you finished it then. Normally I don't. That's my rule. Like if I'm not into it by the end of the first act, fuck it. You know, I'm not yeah, doing yeah. it. But you know, <laughs> the name, Neil Marshall still holds some weight with me. You know, I'm like, okay, I'm going to watch this. I like the, the, con- the, the basic concept is cool. Basically, it's set in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I th- you may remember there was a point in time where we dropped the Moab. Yeah, yeah. And this is like, oh, this is why we dropped that Moab. 
Okay. And it involves this uh, Soviet um, bunker, this underground lair, mm-hmm. hence the title of the movie, where they were like doing experiments and creating like super soldiers. Mm-hmm. Not the most original concept, but I'm, I'm down for it, you know. A bit of a uh, Dietlov pass. Yeah. Kind of yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> it's just, they didn't have the budget for what they wanted to do. The monsters, I mean, it's a dude in a rubber suit. There's nothing cool about them. Okay. The 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 um the sculpt isn't bad, but the face it's just not, eh. It's not memorable. Mm-hmm. They're not. It's just. <laughs> it's just. It's just disappointing. It's just. I can I can literally feel your frustration. Yeah, in room, like it's radiating. very frustrating. It's very yeah. amateurish. It's very. It's just. Ugh. Hmm. Well, that's unfortunate. It is. So anyone out there who might be curious, the Larry, don't waste your time. Or. Move on. If you've seen it and you like it, tell us why. Yeah, tell us why you like it. Yeah, what was appealing to you? Tell us why you're wrong and misguided. <laughs> oh, Jason's <laughs> swinging out hard this time. So enough of that one. Okay. Um, but then I went back and watched um, one of my favorite YouTubers, uh, Ryan Hollinger. I don't know if you ever watch his stuff. Doesn't ring a bell. But he usually comes up with some pretty good movies to talk about. Um, and he his last episode dropped and it was Savage Land. Which is one I've heard of but never watched. Mm-hmm. It's a mockumentary. It came out in 2015. Yep, I um, remember hearing stuff about it, but I never never got around to it. Yeah, so here's what it's about. Uh, when a small town near the Arizona-Mexico border is wiped out overnight, suspicion falls on the lone survivor. But a roll of photos the survivor took uh, that night tells a different story. Mm. Uh, so it's very much like your typical true crime mockumentary thing. Mm-hmm. Then they introduce... Uh, the, the photos that were found and developed and everything that night. And it's it's pretty effective. Hmm. It's pretty good. The um it's kinda neat that they use still photography. Yeah, I was supposed to ask, so it's only still photos. There's no like video or not of the incident in itself. Mm, no. Interesting. But they do like the whole interview talking heads mm-hmm. thing and all that. Cool. Yeah, any anything from that night that actually happened is all still photography. Mm. Yeah, that's kinda compelling. Yeah. And, and some of the images are really, really good. Uh, really creepy. Um, I don't want to say too much about it. It's okay. not exactly, uh, it's not, it's not a groundbreaking, um, idea as far as like what's actually happening, mm-hmm. but the presentation is cool with the, with the photographs and everything. Cool. Um, but yeah, I suggest to go out there and watch it. It's on like Plex and Tubi, a bunch of oh, free okay. everywhere. Yeah. Just Tubi, man. Yeah. Tubi to the rescue. If you could actually subscribe to Tubi. They'd be making so much money. Yeah, I know. I guess they're doing okay though. I mean, they got the <laughs> whole catalog thing on going. Uh, but yeah, I, if you if you if you like found footage, if you like the whole horror mockumentary thing, check out Savage Land. It's pretty good. Unfortunately, it's written by uh, and directed by three people, and none of them have really gone on to do anything else, which oh. is a shame. Don't you hate that? Yeah. You see a really great movie, and you're like, ah, oh, what did they do next? And it's like, well, nothing. No. <laughs> <Yeah>. Nothing. <laughs> but anyway, check it out. Cool. I like it. How about you, man? What have you been watching? So when I don't have a lot of time to watch a bunch of movies, usually that's because i got a lot going on and I'm stressed, so I retreat to my comfort zone, which means I watched a few Japanese films. Of course you did. Which, of course, I liked because I'm a psycho, and it's hard to find a bad Japanese movie to me. But I checked out a pair from um, our podcast favorite, Koji Shiraishi. Because mm-hmm. despite loving him so much, I kind of... 
there's some of his films, like some aren't translated in English, so I can never get at them unless one day they get translated. Right. And then some I kind of just like wait. Like I don't need to watch it yet. I, I like the idea that I know there's another one I could go watch. Sure. Yeah. You know, that I've never seen before. So uh, the first one was Cult from 2013. And I do mean cult, not occult, which we covered <laughs> on the show. Right. Um, this is, again, kind of just the core like thing he's great at. It's sort of this like mockumentary TV show. Um, it's kind of like in the vein of a typical variety sort of show that they do in Japan often where they'll get like famous people and make them go investigate a haunted thing. Mm-hmm. It's meant to be just kind of like a little, little scary, a little funny sure. general entertainment. And so they get like three upcoming like female idol actresses and they want them to take part in an exorcism. Because there's a family that the producers have found that their house is really haunted. And they're going to hire a Shinto priest to come in and do an exorcism on their house and purify it. And they're basically just like, hey, we want you to go there. We want to film it all. And we just want you to be there. Mm-hmm. You just have to follow along. Okay. Easy Plot. job. Sure. Um, and then it kind of spirals out of control. Because as they get there and they're kind of you know getting along with the family, it's like a, it's a single mother and her daughter. So it's got a very good... like exorcism film setup almost mm-hmm. like you know very classic mm-hmm. kind of deal um really great like all the kind of like practical things that he does where they'll do like string pullings of things and makes it feel very real even though it's clearly simulated mm-hmm. um and it seems pretty by the numbers at first and then as it progresses it gets weirder and weirder because you first start to notice that like okay They've got these neighbors, and the neighbors are really weird. And they notice that every time they're doing any of the exorcism stuff or investigation, the neighbors are watching them. Okay. And they're like, well, that's fucking weird, right? And then it starts to get crazier and crazier, and there starts to be, like, little spirit worms that, like, wiggle around and float around the house. and Okay. Uh, kind of reminiscent of what you do see in a cult in some of his other films. Okay. So there's a lot of, like, it's not connected, but there's, like, thematic through lines between them. Uh, but basically the initial exorcist can't get the job done, so he calls in his master. And then it kind of ramps up and spirals out of control. They find out the family's been cursed, and they learn that there's this, like, secret cult that's working in the neighborhood hmm. to, like, summon the god that they worship. And they picked that family to be, like, the conduit because they realize the daughter is very, like, spiritually sensitive. Interesting. And then it just goes crazier and crazier and crazier from there. Eventually they bring in, like, a dude who has, like, literal spiritual powers to be strong enough to stop it. And he's like a straight up anime character. It's like (laughs) wild, crazy hair. And he just Uh says like outlandish, outrageous things for no reason. Nice. And does like, like charges up power attacks and like launches energy Hmm. at, uh, the possessed people. All right. It's super fun. It's super crazy. Um, in his pantheon of films that I've seen, I actually think it's like one of the weaker ones. Now saying that doesn't even mean it's bad. Cause like if you rack it up amongst all found footage films, it's still like, Man, just like up in sure. the top tier of anything, but it has this really weird abrupt ending that suggests there's gonna be more. But it's like uh, it's like a one and done thing. He never really went back to it. Um, it was made as some sort of like weird little uh, like it was like an anthology thing of like three films, three different directors, and none of the films are like connected in any way. But it was kind of like they were a series. Hmm. Um, so I don't know. It, it's kind of fun. He did a newer film called Welcome to the Occult Forest, and it kind of took a lot of the ideas in this one, I feel like, but like, uh, I'm saying maybe like synthesized it better into like a cooler, cooler setup, cooler payoff, uh, more like full feature. This one kind of feels like it was like a, like an idea Mm -hmm. and never really like populated to the full, full extent of what it could have been. All right. Um, but pretty cool. Is Um, Is it easily accessible? 
it has a translation. There is no proper legal release you can get. It's out there. You can find it. We need that Shiraishi box set, man, I think, like, when <laughs> one day, right? Yeah. Um, cult Boutique is going to be there. <laughs> someone needs to get on it. Or I need to somehow win the lottery and start my own label. And that'll be that'll be release number one. <laughs> but the, the other one I watched, also Shiraishi, is Ura Horror, which is from 2008. And so this is like a found footage anthology of shorts. And so the whole impetus by this is he was actually working on what was going to be a TV show. And it was going to be like shorter, like 30-minute episodes. There were like little short segments. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like billed as the sort of thing where it was about like cursed footage, where it was like, we've gathered these tapes and they've come from like filmings for TV shows or news or uh, like events that got filmed and something crazy happened or something supernatural happened and we can't show this now and it kind of got archived. Hmm. And the premise of the show is like, oh, we've taken all of this footage now and we're going to present it to you. And so each short is like maybe only like 10, 15 minutes. They're very, very short. And I guess they did like an initial wave of those and then the show never happened. So they just had all this footage and it was ready and so he compiled it into a film, and they released it that way. Right. Um, so it's about 75 minutes. It's really nice, because if you don't dig a short, like you're going to be out of it. Yeah, and like just wait, a little wait bit. 10 yeah. minutes, it's done. Um, but really, like none of them felt that weak to me. They all felt very, very good. There was a good mix of, like, someone was like, we're filming a TV show, and there was an accident, and someone died. It almost has like a Faces of Death vibe, because mm. like, every segment isn't a horror thing. Um, one of the standouts I remembered is, was... Um, it's supposed to be like a bikini model shoot for like a fashion model. Go on. <laughs> yeah, I know. I have your attention now. <laughs> um, but so the footage they have is that they've hired this guy to like film it all. Because I guess they might do like a, vi- a video of her at some point. It'll be like behind the scenes stuff. And so it's very like benign when it starts. And it's like he's just filming the photo shoot. And like in between shots and stuff, he's trying to like talk to the model. And she's very rude to him. Hmm. And she's like really, really mean. He kind of like wishes ill on her, but like nothing ever happens. So then they're in a park doing this photo shoot, and there's like a bee nearby. And he kind of like, oh, we should shoot somewhere else because they're like, there's bees here or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And then she's like, oh, you're a scaredy cat. You're so afraid. Da, 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 da. So they keep filming, and then like she hits the tree at one point, and just a huge, massive swarm of bees come out, <laughs> and she literally gets like stung to death. <laughs> And so they had to, like, scrap everything. Mm-hmm. But then he still had the behind-the-scenes footage. And the way they presented is cool with, like, title cards, where it'll be like, you know, this person, the name's been made anonymous. They submitted this footage to us, and we're going to show you. And the other thing they do, it, it's almost like, a, again, it made me think of Faces of Death. It's like, it'll get right up to the really shocking part, and then another title card comes up, and it's like, if you've got a weak heart or <laughs> yeah. you're easily scared you shouldn't watch the rest of this or you should pause, you should fast forward and not watch it. Mm -hmm. And then it gives you like the big payoff moment every time. Hmm. Um, So it's just really super fun. If you love anthology stuff, if you love found footage stuff, it's just super, super fun. And again, this is kind of the same situation as a lot of his films. It's been translated. There's no proper release. Wishing and praying every day. Yeah. We never know. Give us more. We we need more. Be nice. But yeah, that's me. Uh, two of Shiraishi's, and they're they're great because everything he does is great. <laughs> great. He's he's the found footage master, as far as I'm concerned. Ooh. I'll, okay. I'll die on that hill. All right. All right. And speaking of dying on hills. Uh huh. Is, is that the segue <laughs> you're going with? <laughs> no, that's a terrible segue. <laughs>
right, so today we're talking about The Quiet Earth from 1985, uh, directed by Jeff Murphy. Yes, we Based are. on a novel by Craig Harrison. Of the same name. Yep. Came out in 81. Yeah, which I have some notes about that, because I looked up a few different plot summaries to, yeah. uh, to piece together. Nice. Um, I guess we'll start with the synopsis. Okay. I've got one that's accurate this time. After our last few <laughs> where they've been weird, I kind of screened this one. Yeah, what the hell? Uh, a man named Zach Hobson awakens to find himself alone in the world. In a desperate attempt to search for others, he finds only two who have their own agenda. Mm. Okay. Okay. You know, the whole, they have their own agenda makes it sound more mysterious than it actually it, is. It does, but that is like the official, like, yeah. if you go pick up a, a box that's going to be on the back of the box kind mm. of thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, this is one of those movies, uh, it was an 80s video rental back in the day, mm-hmm. and I had not revisited it until just recently. Wow. Yeah, I had never heard of it before. I don't know how, but... Cool. Yeah, but it stuck with me, and it finally got a Blu-ray release and everything, and I, I saw some blurbs here and there about people saying, oh, you know, this is a hidden gem, it's mm-hmm. an undiscovered classic. Yeah, and I think I'm like, uh, Arrow put it out, right? Yeah, I think yeah. so, yeah. So I'm like, well, maybe, um, you know... I'm vindicated here, so I'll go back and check it out. <laughs> Sometimes you don't want to revisit those movies of your youth. You know, they're right. never going to hold up to what you. Yeah, I know I think. talked about it a few episodes ago, but I was so nervous to rewatch Idle Hands. I was like, what if it's shit, though? <laughs> That's like, this movie defined my childhood. Right, right. Um, shot in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. You get that out of the way. Yep. Um, I think I, I mistakenly said last time it was a British film, mm-hmm. which goes to show you how long it's been since <laughs> yeah. I've seen it. I just know they had funny accents. Right. You know? <laughs> being being the right proper American that you are. Okay, so uh, what? Well, I was like fourteen. <laughs> no, I was probably younger than that. This probably came out on VHS in '86. Mm-hmm. I'd imagine. So I was probably like twelve, maybe when I saw this. <laughs> um, what genre is this, Jason? Like, we know it's science fiction because it's in the science fiction block. But uh, yeah, it's science fiction. What take, more do you want? Take us further. Well, okay. So. Some people call it post-apocalyptic. Some. Which I think can apply, but I, I, when I watch this, I don't think post-apocalyptic. Mm. But also, uh, mystery or thriller yeah. is often attributed to this one. Uh, IMDb also put drama on there, which I think there is a decent bit of drama. Sure, so. but I'm, honestly, isn't that in every movie? Yeah. I sometimes wonder about that as a thing. It's like, you know, everything's kind of got drama. Yeah. If there's a conflict, there's drama. There's drama, all right. If you have characters, there should be some drama. <laughs> if there's two people and they interact, there is probably drama. But yeah, usually when you say drama with a capital D, you're thinking those, yeah. you know, stuffy, boring, mm-hmm. you know, movies that all the critics love, but the audiences don't. Right. The ones we usually like. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will say to your thing about the post-apocalyptic, I have with me here at the table mm. a little book on film that I enjoy called After the World Ends. A beautiful looking tome. Yes, it's a nice little, it's very, uh, I was talking to you about it before we started recording, it's more of a coffee table book, it's all, all the reviews are like a page long, it's kind of capsule reviews, mm-hmm. uh, but there's a lot of good art and movie posters, and it's, uh, if you like post-apocalyptic cinema, it's a good one to just grab and like, hey, what have I not seen in this? Right. Uh, fill up your watch list. And I brought it because it has a little entry about Quiet Earth, which I'll read later, but... Cool. Uh, yeah, it, see, it, the book, the person that made this book considers it to be post-apocalyptic. Technically, I guess it is. But when I when I think post-apocalyptic, I'm thinking like Mad Max. Right, right. You know, you're thinking 
uh, nuclear fallout, you're thinking mutants, you know, you're thinking people riding around on dune buggies with spikes on them. Well, there is a range, because it, go, it goes from, you know, mutants on, on motorbikes to, uh, you know, weirder things like Nick Cage trapped on an airplane <laughs> <laughs> as the biblical rapture occurs. <laughs> I, I guess that's true. <laughs> I guess that's true. You got me there. <laughs> okay, but um, we are talking about science fiction, and we are talking about it for the first time. So if you're a regular listener, you know what that means. We have to broadly talk about the genre, define it a bit, talk about its history. Yeah, very broadly, because it is... Buckle the fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Jason, what is science fiction? Well, science fiction <laughs> is... Uh, Immediately everyone turned this off. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, you know, there's, Wikipedia actually has a pretty good, succinct definition, I think. It's a film genre that uses speculative, fictional, science-based depictions of phenomena that are not fully accepted by mainstream science, such as extraterrestrial life forms, spacecraft, robots, cyborgs, dinosaurs, mutants, interstellar travel, time travel, or other technologies. Hell yeah. All the good stuff. Yeah. And I will posit that all really good science fiction... It's like the old Star Trek episodes, right? You know, it's trying to say something, right? right Twilight right. Zone, which this movie reminds me very much of Twilight Zone. Very much so. It's trying to say something. You know, it has a, it has a broader comment on the human condition. That sounds fair. And, and like some of these other, like, larger genres, like when we covered fantasy, I said this, but to repeat it again, like, all of this kind of pulls from literature as, like, the antecedent. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um... So as far as a film thing, though, this has been around since the, uh, the silent cinema, like at the very start of everything. Probably the, uh, one of the earliest ones we should mention just to have it out there is um, A Trip to the Moon from 1902. Georges Millier again. Yep. He's always showing up. Fantasy, horror, <laughs> science fiction. He did it all. He's right there at the, uh, the front line for everything. Um, and then the other big one for like early days, I would say, would be Metropolis from Dude. 1927. Metropolis yeah. is still being imitated. It right, still yeah. resonates. The whole cityscape... And everything that's Coruscant, you know, it's it's just it wouldn't <laughs> it, exist without the and other. It still works too. Like I know a lot of people are like Ugh, old films. I don't want to watch an old film. It's boring. And yeah. Like, no, if you put on Metropolis, it just like it captivates you. And it's you, great. You just it's, become like a little kid sitting there like drooling. It's got the, the preeminent mad scientist with like a freaking cybernetic arm. Yeah, hell yeah. Uh, the robot False Maria. I mean, you know, she was the prototype for three PO. It's just <laughs> gorgeous Art Deco design. Such a good movie. Uh, and some other, like, top-level highlights to get out of the way. So, like, uh, we would say, like, the 30s to the 50s, sci-fi kind of reigned through lower-budget stuff, like the B-movies. That's where you get the stuff, like, you know, the, the giant ants and weird, like, radiation makes a giant monster. Right. Or... Yeah. Or the alien invasion stuff, mm-hmm. Earth versus flying saucers, things like that. Um, and then you do get to more, like, prestige things. Like, a, a big one up front is 2001 A Space Odyssey by Kubrick from 1968. Made science fiction respectable again. Yes. It kind of swung it back to be like, oh, it doesn't have to just be like the second feature at a drive-in show yeah. kind of thing. And then, of course, near and dear to Jason's heart, that really changed changed the whole genre, Star Wars in 1977. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's when it became, this can be a big blockbuster. It can be the summer premiere that really matters that everyone's talking about and rake in cash hand over foot. Yeah, Absolutely. And endure to this for, day so for, for good or ill, <laughs> you know. Well, it has to be both because a Sith never 
No, wait, <laughs> uh, absolutes. You're the one that should be making Only these. Only a Sith deals yeah, in yeah, absolutes. Yeah, 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 there we go. <laughs> the further Disney goes with it, the less I care to remember quotes. Oh, so. man. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm changing my pick. I'm changing it. <laughs> Last Jedi. Surprise, Last Jedi. We're going to go watch it real quick and be right back. <laughs> okay. I uh, I pulled these from some different articles, and I, they might be mirrored in the Wikipedia article too. I don't know, but it's basically some uh, some scholars and critics that kind of were like commentating on science fiction as a film genre. I thought it would help us for this blog okay. to start out. Uh, so the first one is from Eric Williams, who he's a screenwriter and film scholar. Uh, he identifies science. I, actually, yeah, I really wanted to talk about this because it, like it kind of made me think about our podcast in general. So. Uh, he identifies science fiction films as one of 11 super genres mm. that for screenwriters, um, basically he, he posited the idea that all feature length narrative films will fall into one of these super genres. And so besides science fiction, the other ones were action, crime, fantasy, horror, romance, slice of life, sports, thriller, war, and Western. Yeah, I think if you had to just do broad categories like that, those and, are and say good. like these are the only ones that can exist. Mm-hmm. But then you've got like the whole spider webbing <laughs> yeah. subsection. Yeah, yeah. Underneath each of those. Uh, interesting premise. You know, if we had been a very like prepared group when we made this podcast, <laughs> maybe it would have been a smart idea to start with those, huh? And then sub out from there. But you know, here we are. And like we say, for genre exposure, it's about the journey, not the destination. So, <laughs> right, right, uh, we, right, we learn and grow as we go. Sure. <laughs> uh, Vivian Sobak, a British cinema and media theorist, had this to say: Science fiction film is a genre which emphasizes actual, extrapolative, or 2.0 speculative science and the empirical method, interacting in a social context with the lesser emphasized but still present transcendentalism of magic and religion. In an attempt to reconcile man with the unknown. Okay. That sounds kind of haughty. A little bit, but uh, if we break that down, right? Mm-hmm. It makes sense if you think about it. It does. It does. And uh, what is it? Is it, the, uh, is it from Asimov, the idea that uh, any suitably advanced bit of technology is indistinguishable from magic? So. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. What else did I want to talk about in this? Um one thing a lot of people talk about is that the visual style in a science fiction film is often characterized by the clash between the alien and the familiar. You'll have things that are familiar to you, but then you'll have things that are very foreign to you. Um, and then that clash is often implemented when the alien becomes the familiar. Like a good example is in A Clockwork Orange with the repetitions of the Kurova milk bar. Mm. That's so out of place at first, but as you see that more and more, you, you start to just accept it as a part of that world. Right. Even and then you find yourself wishing you could visit there, perhaps. Yes, and then you step back from it and you're like, oh, but I don't know, though. <laughs> um, let's see what else. Cultural theorist Scott Bukatman had proposed that science fiction films allow contemporary cultures to witness an expression of the sublime, be it through exaggerated scale, apocalypse, or transcendence. Hmm. More little food for thought there. Yeah. Um, so then I guess it's to... about lasers. <laughs> it's about lasers <laughs> and 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 fast uh, starships and robots. The cool shit. <laughs> uh, just some further breakdown. Uh, so science fiction films are generally speculative in nature. They often include key supporting elements of science and technology. 
Uh, however often as not, the science can be considered pseudoscience or even quasi-scientific at times. Mm-hmm. Um, Again, Star Wars. Yep. That, that was the example I was wanting to reach for there, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, again, sci- uh, tech, or, tech or magic. Yeah. Does it matter? Does it make a difference? Nice sound of me flipping pages because I got a lot of them this time. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to leave that in too. Uh, what else do I want to get into? Oh, this is another from uh, Vivian Sobek. Um, she argued that science fiction films differ from fantasy films and that while science fiction films seek to achieve our belief in the images we are viewing, fantasy films instead ask of the viewer to suspend disbelief and accept what they're presenting. Uh, the science fiction film will display the unfamiliar and alien in the context of things that are familiar. Despite the alien nature of these scenes or elements of the setting, the imagery of the film is related back to humankind and how we connect to our surroundings. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and so while the science fiction film strives to push the boundaries of the human experience, they remain bound to the conditions and understanding that the audience have. Thereby, it's more rooted in prosaic aspects rather than being entirely abstract or impossible to understand or accept. Yeah, it makes it harder to relate to if there's right. no like connective tissue to reality. <laughs> and this comes from more of a literature area, which, of course, I have a background in that, but I wanted to bring it up. Uh, when you talk about like sci-fi literature, a lot of it gets categorized into two two sections, right? There's soft science fiction and hard science fiction. Pause for laugh. <laughs> sometimes it goes from soft to hard science fiction. And sometimes back again. <laughs> uh, but Jason, are those terms that are familiar to you? They are. They are. So what, what is the difference between the two? The difference between the two is that soft fi- science fiction, again, we'll go with the Star Wars example. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be that... Um, theoretically possible. Right. You know, you can just kind of hand wave. You got hyperdrive, sure. Mm -hmm. It allows faster than light travel. Don't worry about it. Yeah, don't think about it. But then you got hard science fiction where all of those considerations must be taken into account. Right. And everything is explained. Mm -hmm. And even if it is not real, there is a very logical, laid out, scientific explanation for everything. Right. I think think the biggest uh, example people use is like Star Trek versus Star Wars. Mm -hmm. Because Star Trek at least tries to incorporate all the speculative A reasoning for everything. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe maybe they're wrong, but they're they're, they're trying. (laughs) Um, I often think of, and this is moving into anime, but it's had films, so it's relevant. I'm going to mention it, Mm -hmm. damn it. Uh, In Gundam, the original Gundam, the uh, space colonies they have, it's like the Mendel-style space colonies. That's actually pulled from a real scientific theory of if we could build a space colony, how would it work? And the idea that it's constantly rotating to simulate gravity and everything else. Mm -hmm. So that's super cool. Um, uh, I think in literature often I think of like uh, Robert Heinlein as like Mm -hmm. the hard science fiction guy. uh, Which Starship Troopers, the film maybe doesn't get as much into the minutia (laughs) of how everything works. (laughs) But that being said, yeah. and also, we should talk about the fact that uh, the science fiction film as a genre has also served as a useful means to get into more sensitive topical issues without causing controversy. It's a way to deliver social commentary or talk about potential future issues mm-hmm. that may develop one day uh, without you know, approaching them in a more alarming way, I should say, which is something we often say about horror as well, yeah. is it lets you like, approach a, a sensitive topic in a safe way and engage with the idea 
Um, I love that you can get the idea of like dystopian films, films, mm-hmm. films where there's a terrible future society. Um, yeah, that's something the uh, Twilight Zone Star Trek did so well. Yep. Raising cultural issues without, you know, really pushing that button <laughs> that would get them canceled. Mm-hmm. Um, and to mention it here, Godzilla is one I always think of, right? About the horrors of nuclear power and what right. that could do. Yeah. Um, which so many science fiction films ran with mm-hmm. in that time. Uh, so I think as far as defining it broadly, that's good enough. Oh, sure. So what are some great science fiction films throughout the decades? We should talk about that. Oh, God. So starting out, we kind of hit the early ones that were important, right? Trip to the Moon, Metropolis. You've got to start with Metropolis, at mm-hmm. least. At the very least. Uh, Shape of Things to Come, also from the 30s, mm-hmm. is very, very good. Uh, 1916, there was an adaptation of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, based on the Jules Verne novel. Mm-hmm. That's another very early example. Um, and 1925, there was the uh, adaptation of The Lost World. Oh, yeah. Stop motion. That was uh, Brian O'Willis, right? Yes. Or Willis O'Brien, rather. Yeah, yeah, I'm dyslexic, yeah, yeah. apparently. <laughs> I don't know why I've heard it the right way, even though you... Yeah, right. <laughs> Your brain reverses yeah. it. Uh, some say Frankenstein science fiction. Nah, mm-hmm. It's some, more some horror. I saw a list that actually put Cabinet of Dr. Caligari on there, and I was like, eh, I don't know if I can go no, there with you. But No, I don't go that... No. Yeah. You lost me. That's, that's too horror-tinged. Mm-hmm. Which, there can be sci-fi horror Of course. As well. Alien. Alien obvious example. Um, Event Horizon. Sure. Why not? Little Hellraiser in space, which they did do. Uh, Transformers movies. Yeah. Very, very frightening. <laughs> how horrible they are. Other than the animated classic from the 80s. Oh, I do actually still like that movie. <sighs> so oh, good. I will defend Bumblebee. I actually like Bumblebee. I never watched it because I was scared to, but I have mostly only heard good things. I think so. all the goodwill from that movie is going to be ruined by this newest one, though. So. Mm. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not big on the Beast Wars stuff. Man. No, no. Fuck all that shit. <laughs> uh, so in the 30s uh, important one to mention King Kong one of our earliest like giant creature yeah type movies yeah uh, let's see what else um, all also, Flash Gordon serials yeah, I was about to say in the 30s there were a lot of serials like Flash Gordon Buck Rogers yep uh, let's see um, if we move on up to the 50s that's where the interest in space travel really took a center stage. Um, we did get a lot of like the B movies in that time of like just weird kind of like monsters on a rampage sort of thing. But we also got Forbidden Planet in the fifties. Yes, Forbidden Planet, The Day the Earth Stood Still, mm-hmm. a huge one. Think from another world when worlds collide. War of the Worlds. War of the Worlds. The original. Dude, that still holds up so well. <laughs> the effects are yeah. just gorgeous in that movie. Um, the original version of the Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah. Journey to the Center of the Earth. Um, which we can see in the 50s, there is sort of like a blending there where the the sci-fi movie is kind of being tied up with the monster movie from from the old uh, world of horror there. Um, and some examples of this include things like Them, which that's the giant ants, right? Yeah, I yeah, love yeah. Them, yeah. Uh, Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, The Blob. blob. Love The Blob. <laughs> Fucking love The Blob. Um, and when we're talking about all of these, we also have to talk about Ray Harryhausen a little bit. I know we mentioned him in Fantasy, but mm-hmm. guess what? He pops up here too. Sure does. Um, it came from beneath the sea. Nineteen fifty-five was one that he worked on. That's quite excellent. Earth versus the flying saucers. Yeah, classic. Um, 
And then also in the 50s, that's where Godzilla comes in as well, 1954, which spawned its own whole, not only series itself, but many imitators and people inspired by that. It's so weird to think of how old Godzilla is. Yeah, I don't like to think about it. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but also, Japan had a lot of other like spree of just general science fiction films. Like One I love is Warning from Space from 1956, oh, okay. which I think yeah. Kubrick even lists that as like an inspiration on 2001. Hmm. So Nice. Yeah, when you get to the 60s, you're talking about probably the two biggest are 2001 and um, Planet of the Apes. Mm-hmm. Um, also, it's, I guess, maybe a little more horror-leaning, but I wanted to throw it in because it's Bob and I love it. Uh, 65 had Planet of the Vampires. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> it's a gorgeous movie. Um, an adaptation of Fahrenheit 451 in 66. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then 68, we got to mention it, Barbarella. <laughs> We have to? Which, which pulls more into the uh, the comical and the sultry mm-hmm. side of things. Uh, oh, and then 65, there's Alphaville. I am not familiar with that. Oh, what? Yeah, I know. I haven't seen not, that. Oh, it's a, it's a banger. The, the name now sounds familiar looking at it, but... It's uh, Godard. Hmm. Jean-Luc Godard. Yes. Okay. I'll go back and watch it. <laughs> uh, late 60s going into the 70s. We've got uh, Andre Tarkovsky, we've got to mention. Mm. Solaris in 72 and then Stalker in 79 those are both just incredible films that really show like if you want to take the auteur angle on sci-fi and really punch up into like the uh, the artsy area with one of these that's boring let's get to the lasers <laughs> uh, okay yeah let's uh, let's get a little into that so George Lucas <laughs> in 71 we've got THX right yeah yeah uh, what else? 71 Andromeda Strain. That's a good one. That's that's hard sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Logan's Run in 76. Silent Running. <laughs> yeah. Uh, green. Oh, 73 has Westworld, which is probably relevant to mention since that's gotten remastered into its uh, the TV show. Yeah, that, uh, well, it's called Max now, apparently. But they, they're not streaming it anymore. They completely dropped it. What? There's no way to watch that show now. And that was my biggest fear about the age <laughs> of the... Uh, the, the streaming yeah things shows. things are gonna get lost uh to mention him because we love we love him John Carpenter's Dark Star have you ever seen Dark Star I yeah. haven't seen it it's quite good it's not it's not what you want it to be right but it's good okay if you go in wanting like typical peak John Carpenter it's not that sure it's quite enjoyable I need to go break down and watch it sometime uh, seventy seven besides Star Wars was also a huge year in general for sci fi because we also had Close Encounters of the Third Kind. From Spielberg. Mm-hmm. And then shortly following that, 79, we had Star Trek, the motion picture. Underrated which, movie. While perhaps not the most beloved entry in the film series, is quite good, I say. I think it's great. Yeah. I really like it a lot. It's unfairly maligned. I like it because the premise of what's going on is such a good, like, high-concept sci-fi mm-hmm. plot. Right. Yeah. It really pushed to try to do something big. It did. Um, also, Walt Disney got in the game at this point. They had, uh, what, the Black Hole, Flight of the Navigator. I will defend the Black Hole with my life, sir. <laughs> and then, of course, moving into the 80s, we had sequels to Star Wars. Oh, uh, I guess we should also mention Ridley Scott, because, what, the first Alien was 79. Yes. And again, that's sci-fi horror, but very iconic, must be mentioned. Mm-hmm. And then, following up that, in 82, we had Blade Runner, which is like the preeminent master text for uh, cyberpunk films. Oh, yeah. No getting away from that one. Um, I love Blade Runner. And then as we run further into the 80s, we get stuff like, uh, also in 82 was E.T., the extraterrestrial, which as far as kids-focused sci-fi is 
great little entry for sure. Yeah, for, for the, good entry the point. Hits. Yep. Uh, and then James Cameron '84. We got Terminator. Classic. Very classic. Um. Let's see. RoboCop. RoboCop. Aliens. Uh, we get some big budget adaptations of things like we got the the big budget Flash Gordon in the '80s, right? Was it '80s? I think that was late '70s. Was it late '70s? Mm-hmm. I forgot to write down the date. That is my bad, dog. Um, and then also, of course, who could forget David Lynch's adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune? Hey, I got a soft spot for that too. Man, it's better than you think it is. It I'll is. Say that. I mean, the new one, at least the first part, is very good. Very yes. good. It's it, ex- it is arguably much better than David Lynch's version, but I uh, I reluctantly didn't go see it in theaters. But after you showed it to me, I'm going to go see part two in theaters. Oh, you, you need to. Yeah, man, it's good. Probably with you. Just to awesome. Yeah, we need have to go. Uh, also with Disney 82, we had Tron. It's kind of getting into the idea of like virtual reality, a virtual world that could exist in a computer. Yeah. Uh, that becomes a much more prominent idea down the road, but, you know, laying it down early. 85, got to mention Back to the Future, as far as like time travel focused sci-fi. That's Not huge. exactly hard science fiction, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good example of soft science fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, Although I also argue that's a comedy first before science fiction. And then because I always have to cram anime in the mix, also in the 80s there was quite the spree of science fiction anime focused things. Akira. Yeah, most notably Akira in... Uh, God, I just lost it. Uh, 1988. That was my... Outside of like Robotech and stuff, that was my gateway to anime film was Akira. I mean, it was huge, and it was such, had such a big impact over here, too, because I think it was so easy to, to get into. It was one of the first VHSs I ever bought. Oh, yeah. And, of course, there's always that talk of a big-budget like film adaptation, but I don't just know. Just don't. Just don't. <laughs> I don't know if we'll ever get just, there on it. We don't need to. Just don't, man. <clears throat> just watch the movie. Watch the original movie. Uh, in the 90s, the game kind of changed up because we had the emergence of the World Wide Web. So that led to... That's really the heyday of the cyberpunk tale. Mm. Uh, we've got... Let's see, uh, Total Recall in 1990. Carrying on from the 80s, we got Terminator 2 in 1991. Uh, speaking of cyberpunk stuff, we had Lawnmower Man in 92. <laughs> I kind of I have a soft spot you for would. Lawnmower Man. You I don't would. know why, but I do. Uh, and then, of course, at the end of that decade, The Matrix in 1999. Big revolutionary film, both on the effects front. And kind of just the synthesis of bringing in like that anime influence. If if you weren't and, there, it's hard to convey right. how special the Matrix was. That yeah, year. it was really, it was really something special. Because it, 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 no one really knew anything about it, mm. and then it came out, and you were just like, "Holy <laughs> shit!" <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was already like maximum anime nerd at that point, so uh-huh. I like I, I got those visual references, oh, yeah. and I was like, "Dude, he's this guy's yeah, trying this, this to live action anime." Yeah. So good. Still hold up to. I never watched that new one, but it's yeah. You don't need to. It's fine. I assumed it would be what all the reboot cool. I, I pretend are. the only the don't that the first one's the only one because that ending is perfect. <laughs> that is a perfect ending. That's the only movie in my opinion. Um, also as we push toward the year two thousand, we had a lot of uh, doomsday type stuff in the culture going on in America at least. Yeah, the whole Y two K scare. Yeah, uh, and then also a lot of the religious like. That was when a lot of like religious, you know, denominations had like this is the the time of the end of days sort of mm-hmm. things sp- springing up. Uh, so we had a lot of disaster movies as well, which has been a prevalent thing. Uh, that probably hit its biggest peak in 1998 
when both Armageddon and Deep Impact dropped in the same year. Yeah. Yeah. Is that science fiction? I guess it is technically, oh, but yeah. it's just... Uh, I mean, to me... A disaster I, movie seems like it's its own I, genre. I think it can be both, and it depends on the context. Like, both right. of those two I would count as science fiction. I meant to say this when we first started this I guess whole it's kind of speculative. What would happen? Discussion, but... Um, to define that idea of speculative, I think any good science fiction story, what it's doing is asking a question of what if blank yeah, happened right. or what if blank could happen yeah, or could be true. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and that's like your starting point. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's see what else we had from then. Alien Invasion stuff, like an Independence Day, 1996. Another big blockbuster sci-fi yeah, another big feature. popcorn movie. <laughs> uh, and then also... Questions of things like genetic experimentation with Jurassic Park in 93 or Gattaca in 97. And then also worth mentioning in the 90s to uh, stress you out a little bit, that's where we got the prequels to Star Wars coming down the pipeline. Yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> I'm good. Okay, you're good. Okay. <laughs> um, moving into the 2000s. That's where a lot of sites and places I was checking to get like some pull some info... They lumped superhero films into science fiction, which I, I get. But I also think it's, like, contextual a little bit. Like, I mean, yeah, it's like, yeah, Superman's an alien, but it's like, that doesn't matter. It's right, just, it's not relevant. Yeah. Um, like, Guardians of the Galaxy, yeah, that's a science fiction superhero movie, like, right. straight up. But to say it's, you know, Spider-Man is also a sci-fi film because there's genetic manipulation in there. Like, yeah, yeah there is, but that's... That, that question isn't being asked. It's more about the superhero angle. Of, right, right. You, you know, he has these powers, and what does he do now? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, take of that what you wish, but um, also in the 2000s, there was a lot of, like, political commentary-focused stuff. We had things like Minority Report, right? The question of, like, what if you could predict yeah. crimes? I know. It's I, I can't film. like that movie. Yeah, I know. I just can't. Fucking Tom Cruise ruins everything. <laughs> you know, there's only one Tom Cruise movie he doesn't ruin it because he's perfectly cast. Eyes Wide Shut. I love Eyes Wide Shut, yeah. Because he's playing a narcissistic <laughs> asshole. <laughs> he didn't, he didn't and, have to act. Yeah. Not that he ever acts, but... <laughs> um, okay, well, let me hit you with a different one for political commentary. Uh, District 9. Perfect movie. Perfect <laughs> there we go. fucking that's movie. That was another one that surprised the hell out of me when I saw it. And, and that's one of those where if we go back to the idea of, like, you can use sci-fi to get at a question that's relevant now. Mm-hmm. But in a way that's a little more approachable. Yeah. Where you don't get weird people God, on Facebook yeah. reading nasty comments. Well, no way around that anymore. <laughs> so. uh, we also got questions of like AI coming in at two at this time. Um, also, 2000s, got to mention the Transformers, which I know you brought up mm. a little earlier. Uh, I don't really have any commentary on those. I think they're garbage. <laughs> yeah. Love the cartoons, but no. Uh, James Cameron's Avatar. I don't like it, but if you love it, that's more power to you. Sure. It's worth mentioning just for what a big success it was, both as a technical marvel and then like the box office and stuff. Yeah. Uh, it's it's Pocahontas in space. Mm. I'm just going to say that, but... Uh, 2010s, that was where we got a lot of like updates to classic things, I would say. Uh, Tron Legacy in 2010. Whole reboots for like Planet of the Apes, Godzilla... Uh, Ex Machina in 2015. I wanted to bring up that up as far as things that focus on like AI and artificial intelligence. Right. That's a great uh, adaptation of that sort of idea. Um, 
There's also that movie Her from 2013. Not oh, quite. No. Uh, not quite one that's our fair, but still a good movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, remakes of Total Recall in 2012. Uh, was it Chappie in 2015? That was yeah, yeah. Uh, Interstellar is a good one. To Interstellar, mention. yes. Which I say leans into hard sci-fi. Because mm-hmm. that is pretty grounded in... Theoretical science. Theoretical right? science, yeah. Um, bu- 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 the Blade Runner sequel, mm-hmm. which is surprisingly good. Not perfect, but good. Oh, and, and then like late 2010s, we got like The Martian in 2015. Yeah, that was good. Next year, 2016 Arrival. Yeah, that's a good one. That's and those fun. are more like ones that actually got a lot of like accolades and potential award nods mm-hmm. for their efforts. Uh, there's a whole line I left out of this that I'm not going to get into, but just to mention it for sake of completion. Uh, also in more modern times here, we've had a lot of like YA fiction, sci-fi stuff. Yeah. Uh, your Hunger Games and your Maze Runner. And I could not care less, no. but, but they're out there. Um, also in the 2010s, there was a lot of like indie productions getting into doing sci-fi stuff. I think a lot of that has to do with just the rise of like digital filmmaking in general. Oh, it makes it so much it's, easier. It's suddenly much easier to do a bigger high concept thing thanks mm-hmm. to digital effects with a smaller budget. Uh, some notable ones, one that I love that I know you're not too fond of, Attack the Block in 2011. Uh, but there's also stuff like uh, 2012's Looper. Which, yeah, yeah, I like. Yeah, I know you like it. <laughs> I, I put it in the list just for you. Um, and then 2017, it didn't end up being what uh, it was meant to be, I guess, but uh, Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets. I never even watched that one. You didn't? Uh, no. Hmm. Well. Did you? <laughs> yeah. Did you like it? It's all right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and where are we now? It's still like, what, a mainstay part of film, I would say, right? Oh, absolutely. Sure. And like you said, because the, I mean, it still costs a lot of money, obviously, for CG and stuff like that. But, I mean, if you've got dedicated people and, and a good computer, you know, and right. software, you can do a lot of that yourself. But I do miss the days of models and miniatures and all that good stuff. I mean, that's still utilized to some degree, but <laughs> not like it used to be. And that's super fast. And it was mostly dropping a lot of titles, but that's kind of just, if you're like, where do I start with sci-fi? There you go. Run through, look up some of those, check trailers, see what you think, find what you enjoy to delve into. Mm-hmm. There's one little slice that I didn't really talk about too much, and that is the post-apocalyptic subgenre, which this film we're doing falls into. That's worthy of its own discussion. It needs to be its own thing. We'll do that as its own block some point down the road. But I guess just to define it, Jason, what are post-apocalyptic films? Post-apocalyptic films are movies that are set after the apocalypse. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, now, just for sake of like, hey, if you wanted to check some out, Jason, do you have any favorites? Um, obviously, the go-to are the Mad Max films. Right. Hands down. Yeah. Um, any of the Italian trash <laughs> movies are pretty good, too. <laughs> I fucking love Endgame. And then what's the other one? Raiders of Atlantis. Raiders of Atlantis. Yeah. yeah. Those are just good, fun cheesiness. And a lot of the knockoff ones, too. Like, was it Bronx Warriors? Yeah. 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 I mean, there's a whole t- <laughs> it, it was probably one of the most um, frequently made genres in the 80s. So after the success of Mad Max, <laughs> they were just flooding the video shelves. They were you everywhere. find you some ruined buildings and like a deserty. Yeah, field. Warrior of the Lost World. You know, that's another one of them. It's just there's so many of them. So easy. Future but, Kill. Well, 
Uh, but we will save that conversation. Sure. That's, a, that's a whole other block. That's a whole other block. Now, if you're still with us somehow, <laughs> let's get into The Quiet Earth itself. Hey, these fuckers, I know what science fiction is, motherfucker. Talk yeah. about the movie. Again, I subscribe to the Stan Lee School of Thought. Every issue is someone's first issue. One day someone might listen to this that's not seen a lot of science fiction because they're a 16-year-old kid, and I don't know how they stumbled onto Air Podcast, but <laughs> you, you know what, man? We're going to get you sorted, and it's going to be okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, Jason, how does this movie open? Uh, it opens with a naked man on the bed. Yeah. Full wiener on display. Yeah. Well, okay. Let's back up a little, though. The title sequence is interesting to me because the whole post-apocalyptic theme, Mm -hmm. uh, it's like a shot of the sun slowly rising out of the sea. Yeah. And does this sun not look like a slowly exploding mushroom cloud from an atomic bomb? It does. I do not think that is a coincidence, sir. (laughs) One might say so. Also, (laughs) just to put it out there, in this opening sequence, the score fucking slams. Yeah. Like, it just hits so hard. That's uh, John Charles was the composer. I looked into him a little bit. He only did like three or four other films, none mm. that I had seen. That's a shame, man. This this whole yeah. film, like start to finish, the music is just on point. It's really good. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we get an overhead shot of our protagonist. He's laying naked in bed. He he. The only thing he has on is a lanyard, like yeah. you know, with your, your ID, like at a workplace. Yeah, let's say he works at an office of some kind. We would like badge in and stuff. Yeah, and I'm thinking, man, what kind of a night did this fucker have? <laughs> you know, it's a real, I mean, real bender. Sure, people sleep naked. You know, that's not unusual, but it's just... Of course, to show it's a little unusual. Yeah. Uh, at least when it's a dude. So give movie, <laughs> give give this movie props for, you know, exploring the male anatomy, right? Yeah. When a lot of movies at the time would not ever do that. But we get some sort of a weird explosion and a flash of light. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I say explosion, I don't mean like, you know, a big atomic it's blast It's more of or like a, a pulse, almost, yeah. I would say. right, right. And he wakes up. And his clock doesn't seem to be working until he starts tapping on it. And interestingly, the clock says uh, it's 612. Yep, which file that away for later. Yeah, file that away for later. That, that will be important. Um, and it's a really it's a really quiet start, which I kind of liked. Because it kind of just builds this like <laughs> nice little like tension, but it's not yeah. like aggressive. But it's you're feeling like what's going on. And it, and it trusts its audience. Yeah. Uh, can you see this movie being made today? It would have like Blade Runner forced narration, where it'd be like, right. "I'm Zach Hobson. I was a scientist at blah blah blah." Or, 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 or <laughs> yeah, or it would condense the whole first act into ten minutes. Yeah, but I love how it lets it breathe because he, um, he gets up and he's like, he gets on the phone, nobody's answering, mm-hmm. um. We find out that he's staying in a hotel. Uh-huh. He's leaving the hotel. No one's there. Yeah. We don't see anyone around. He stops to get some petrol because it's New Zealand. They call it petrol there. <laughs> uh, but no one's working at the station. Like He's going around looking for people. And we're seeing things like uh, coffee cups and like you know breakfast is out, but no one's around. They do a fun fake out at the gas station too where he comes to the counter, he rings the bell a few times, and then he hears a sound in the back. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, there must be a person back there. I'll just go get them real quick. But it's just like some machinery running. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think someone had like some uh, coffee on the kettle or something yeah. like that or tea. And it was like, and it takes <laughs> off. And oh, he also finds like a locked bathroom stall. Mm-hmm. And he looks under and there's like a magazine. 
someone may have been in there, but it's locked from the inside and no one's in there now. Which that's like one of those little like uh, it's a good like narrative breadcrumb. Mm-hmm. Like why why is this this way? Yep. And he goes to a house. Mm-hmm. And I got the impression this was the house of someone he may have known. I assume maybe one of his coworkers. Yeah. Perhaps. Or maybe an ex-girlfriend or ex-wife or something like that. I don't know. We don't learn a lot about his personal life. Sure. I will say in the novel you do, which I'll get into maybe at the end of the, the everything. Okay. Right. Um, but he goes all through the house looking around. No one's there. Yeah. Uh, he finds an empty truck on the road. Almost hits it in this car. Not paying attention. Yeah. Which is not the first time that happens either. It's funny. Yeah. <laughs> and also it's a setup for payoff later. Mm-hmm. Uh, he gets on the CB, gets no response. Uh, and then he's driving along and he finds a plane that has crashed. Yeah. And this and is really ominous to him, like moving through the wreckage. Yeah. And it's it's really cool. I think they used some old abandoned factory for it. Mm. But I mean, like there's fires going on and just wreckage everywhere for a a fairly cheap movie. It looks, there's a lot of production value here. It felt really big. Yeah. Um, and there's another one of those like oddity scenes where he finds like a chunk of plane seats. Yeah. And they're still buckled. But right. there's no one there. No there's, one's there but they're buckled. There's yeah. no debris. There's no gore. There's nothing. No corpses. And now you're thinking he's the only heathen in the town full of Christians. <laughs> and he was left below. <laughs> But he goes to his workplace. Yes. Uh, Delinco? Yeah. Delinco. Research Delinco. division. It's a research thing. It's led by the United States, but it's kind of like an international, uh, like multi-scientist consortium sort yeah. of thing. So he's, he goes in, and yeah, no one's there. Uh, he's checking computers and stuff, but he's not getting a response from any of the other offices, which we see are around the world. Mm-hmm. And we pick up a little bit of info here. The thing he's working on is called Project Flashlight. Yeah. But I think they wait a little while before they tell you oh, sure. what that really is about. Just dropping little hints right now. Uh, so he goes down to like some <clears throat> sub-basements. Um, and there's a computer readout saying that the project is complete. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> he finds the first corpse we've seen. This yeah. is the first body. It's a dude uh, named Perrin. Yeah. And he looks pretty burned. And he's got, like, bulging eyes. He looks like he had a bad day. Yeah, a very bad day. Again, this isn't a horror film, but it is, does have some, like, good horrific moments. Like, when he pulls it back and you see the guy's face. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty effective. That's a good reveal. Reminds me a bit of uh, Psycho. Yeah. At the end. Especially because um, the chair, like, swivels around, right. too. Right, yeah. So then you might be thinking, okay, how come this body is here, but we don't see any other bodies? Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, because once he goes in and opens this room... The alarm goes off, and there's, like, radiation leakage. Yep. So this guy must have been protected from what what they come to call the effect. Yeah, he, he dubs it that because he doesn't know what else to call it. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, the lab seals itself off to protect the rest of the facility, which means he's stuck in there now and has no choice but to try to intuit a way out. And, and the next thing we learn about our, our guy here, Zach Hobson, is that he's pretty resourceful. Oh, yeah. Very much so. Yeah, he gets uh, a couple of uh, torches, uh, lights them, and has some open gas canisters. Canisters. He sets them up in a bathroom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then he goes, runs, and hide a couple of rooms away under a desk. And, uh, and this is where we get the tape recorder, right? Yes, he has a tape recorder there, and he starts playing it, and it's, it's his voice. And he's talking about how he can't go on with the project because he knows it's flawed. 
And it could be bad for everyone. And this is when we find out his name. Mm-hmm. And he starts talking into the recorder and he says that he believes he's the only person on Earth. Mm-hmm. And the explosion goes off. Um, tears kind of a hole in the ground, which he uses to escape. Yeah, he kind of like climbs up and out of the bathroom. Yeah. And then we move into this really... File that away for later, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of good setup and callbacks yeah, in this film. Yeah, um, But yeah, now it's like this long segment of him just kind of trying to exist, I guess. And it's really well done, man. Like, the way they just show him go through the motions of, like, yeah. literally what this would be if there's no one else. Yeah, but, but he's smart, because he goes to a radio station mm-hmm. and makes a recording of himself, his name, all of his personal information, where to find him, his number. Mm-hmm. He says, if anyone's out there, contact him. Yeah, blast that over the airwaves. Yeah. He um, hits up a mall, and it gets very Dawn of the Dead. Very Dawn of the Dead. <laughs> yeah, he's buying expensive uh, objects and trying to pack shit into his car. I love when he puts on the nice suit, and he's checking himself out, and he looks at the price tag, and he's like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right out of Dawn of the Dead. Um, yeah, we get scenes of him, like, he's sitting by the phone at home, drinking, Got a nice computer set up. Yeah, he's driving around in the police car using the speaker, trying to find if anyone's there. And uh, then he decides, oh, fuck, what am I still doing here? <laughs> why, and, why am I in this little, like, one yeah. little, uh, house? And then we see him, like, in this big mansion. And But he's, he's playing his own message on the radio, and he's updated it, mm-hmm. <laughs> saying his new address. <laughs> and this is where he kind of starts to uh, lose it a little bit. Yeah, but he does something really gross first. He puts that raw glass of raw egg with champagne and yeah. drinks it. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh. <sighs> Actually, when he does that too, we get another flash. Mm, like yeah. something's happening. Um, but yeah, this is when he kind of starts to lose things. He start he like he's playing snooker with himself, but like playing two <laughs> different characters. Yeah. I, I like that. He was, like, acting both characters out. Yeah. He's, like, playing saxophone in the rain. and That was a nice shot. Yeah. Well, that's apparently, like, it was a little inside joke, I guess, because it was to something the actor had done before or something. Oh, yeah. I read something. Like, he stole a saxophone yeah. or something, but felt bad about it and took it back. <laughs> yeah. So they threw that scene in. Yeah. Like, a little, little reference. Um, he starts going through the clothes in the closet, like the female clothes, mm-hmm. and he's, like, smelling them and everything. <laughs> And then he, he starts to try him on the 90s, you know, and he's walking around with that. And man, he hangs in it for a long time. He does. He, he's, he stays. <laughs> he's comfortable, you know. He can finally be himself. Yeah. Nothing wrong. No shame. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. And, and then we get to where he starts making these cardboard cutouts of people and setting them up all over the, the yard and all through the house. Yeah. Um, including a lot of famous people like what there's the, the Pope, Pope John Paul II. And uh, even Adolf Hitler. Yep. And this is where he does his, like, president speech, right? It is. Yeah. He sets up these huge speakers on the balcony. And he he gets all these cardboard cutouts set up like they're there to hear him speak. Like he's this big dictator. And he comes out in in the nighty. (laughs) (laughs) And he makes this big speech about he's the president of the earth now and... Of this quiet earth. Yeah, that's where we get the title. It's yeah. one of those, oh, there's the title. Mm-hmm. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> <laughs> and then he just kind of loses it and starts trashing the place. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, yeah, Nixon is next to Hitler, too, which is yeah. pretty funny. <laughs> Yeah, it's almost like that's intentional. He says he's the president of this quiet earth and he's been condemned to live because he should have known better. And at the end of his speech, nearabouts, that's the power the power grid seems to fail and he's in darkness. Yeah, we come to realize he has a lot of guilt about what happened because he knew it was going to be bad (laughs) and he could have stopped it. Yeah. But he chose not to. And there's that great scene where he's wandering around still in the nighty and it's all like torn and dirty. Carrying his shotgun, he goes into a church. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's, you know, he's saying, "Where are you?" Obviously, asking where God is. Mm-hmm. And he points his gun at the statue of Christ and says, "If you don't come out, I'll shoot the kid." <laughs> 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 oh man, that is fucking funny. Um, which Zach is played by uh, Bruno Lawrence. He's great, man. He, he is so fucking good. He is this film. Like, if it was not him, this film wouldn't work. I don't think. Like. His performance is just so good and goes through like such a range of emotions mm-hmm. and states. Yeah, yeah, he's 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 excellent, and you would have to because, I mean, he carries half the movie all by himself. Yeah, no interactions, no one else. <sighs> it's just his performance, and it's great, man. It's so good. Yeah. Um. So he's saying like how he knows he he says he knows he is God, mm-hmm. and he's running over stuff on this big Earth mover. Yeah, just looks fun. And. uh... It's a it's like a baby carriage. Right? Yeah, he runs over a baby carriage, and then he gets out and checks it because even though he knows nothing's there, it's like what know, if there it, was? Yeah, it's that connection. <laughs> it kind of brings him back to reality for a second. Yeah, and then he puts a shotgun in his mouth, and yeah. we're, we're thinking, oh, he's he's had it. This Which, is it. There's one scene earlier where he kind of toys with the idea. Right. Yeah, but he doesn't go that far with it. Yeah. But then we get a shot of him springing out of the water. Mm-hmm. Good get, good transition. Yeah, we get more naked Zach. <laughs> Running on the beach. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So obviously he's had some sort of a change of heart. He kind of gets into this like normal daily life that he goes through. Yeah, we see him. He's gathering like farming supplies mm-hmm. and putting them in the back of a truck. He's thinking now about sustainability and, and future and time. and. Mm-hmm. Though, I mean, really, if you are the only person on earth, you could kind of just bounce town to town. I mean, what would you do? <laughs> Living you know? off the supplies that exist that are like, you know, yeah. canned and stuff. Yeah. Um, but he, apparently he's moved into another house, I think. So it's a more, uh, reasonable house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we see he's, he's mowing the yard with a radio controlled lawnmower. Like yeah. he's rigged it up. Yeah. It's one of several clues that he's quite smart and mm-hmm. tech savvy. Yes. Um, and he's got one of his computers there working in the house and it's like monitoring the atmosphere and things like that. Then and now here's where I'm gonna say this before you you say your thing. Do it because I have a feeling we may walk down two different roads now. Okay. Here is where the film begins to fall apart. Oh, okay. Because I have issues from here on. Okay, all right. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Continue, my friend. Uh, well, he hears a noise and turns around, and there's a woman in his house with a gun leveled at him. Yep. Um, but. There's kind of almost an instant understanding that neither of them mean each other any harm. Yeah. And she says it's not even real. Yeah, she says it's fake. <laughs> and they immediately embrace. And he says how, how good it is to see somebody. You know? And this is Joanne. She's played by Allison uh, Rutledge. Also very good, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's a complex character. She's more complex than you think at first, I think. Is she? I think she is. Here's my first problem with the rest of the film. Is I okay. feel like... 
when they bring in these other characters. Uh-huh. Maybe that's a little spoiler for what we're about to get into, but yeah, we get one more character. <laughs> um, they never felt like fully characterized to me in a way. Like I didn't feel like I knew either of them. Like I knew our guy here, Zach. But I think that's also the point. But it was kind of felt like it was to the detriment of okay what goes on. Well, let's continue, and we'll see if I can change your mind. Sure. Um. So they they've obviously had a nice dinner, and they're they're sharing their lives with each other, mm-hmm. know, what their experiences and stuff like that. Um, and they kind of get devoted to this routine of like normal life, but also we'll go out and like have some fun and also search for any other survivors. Yeah. She tells a story that's interesting about going to a hospital right when the effect first happened. Mm-hmm. And it was, she was, she found a baby, but it was already dead. Right. Yeah. Um, yes. Cause we haven't seen any animals either. Right. Um, but also during that dinner, he also says something about how his, his theory is that they're either dead or in a different universe. Mm-hmm. Like this, this event happened and it like shunted them into another mm-hmm. version of earth. Yeah. Which I thought that was super interesting. Cause it's like such a high concept idea to have in this kind of film. Right. Cause you could easily just rest on like everyone died or everyone vanished. Mm-hmm. And then that's like the whole of it. Right. Uh, but to even like toy with ideas like parallel universes or. Stuff like that. It's cool. Yeah, definitely. Uh, they do find a couple of bodies at one point. Mm-hmm. Looks like they were in a car crash or something. Yeah. It's weird. It's like an ambulance, too. Mm-hmm. They had they were helping someone, and then they crashed. Yeah, but they remark how there's no like maggots or anything. Right, yeah. So there's... It, it was clear the body had been there a while, but... Right. Uh, so there's no animals. Nothing. Mm-hmm. It's like they're the only living things on the planet. Um, and then we get a little bit of romance between them. It's clear that like Zach's really into her. Oh, of course he is. Because it's a oh, oh woman. Yeah, and she's she's good looking too. Yeah, she's cute. Uh, yeah, he's kind of makes some advances, but she doesn't seem that interested. And I will say it's a, he's at least nice enough to like when she doesn't reciprocate, he kind of just backs off. Right, right. And there's a scene where they show him kind of putting her to bed because she had a lot to drink that first night, mm-hmm. and he you could tell he's tempted to, but he doesn't. <laughs> yeah, he just reaches over and turns the light out. Yeah. I like that scene. Yeah, um, they split up in different vehicles with walkie-talkies to look for other people. Yeah, they really uh, streamline their their process. Yeah, and her her theory, like you kind of mentioned, was that they should look for like hospitals and prisons, places where people might be afraid to leave, mm-hmm. or places they would go, or maybe even trapped. Right, because the thing she remembered is she was like in her bathroom that night when it happened. Yeah, and she knows that he was in his hotel room. So, kind of her theory is like maybe people that were indoors. Mm-hmm. In some situations, we're spared somehow. Yeah. Uh, but we, we learned that uh, Zach kind of has his own agenda because the the first time they, we see them really split and explore a place, he goes to a college campus. Yep. But he goes there to go to their science lab and use some of their equipment. Yep. Because he's trying to get like data and readings on this effect. Yep, exactly. And he's telling her that he thinks that he and his coworkers may be responsible for what has happened. Mm-hmm. Says it was an American energy project. And they had stations all over the world. It was supposed to be some sort of like, almost like a free energy grid right. type thing they were working on. Their idea was that the Earth has this kind of like ephemeral energy grid around it. And if you could learn how to tap into that, it could have all kinds of neat purposes like free renewable energy. And also uh, what the United States was interested in was military applications of, of how they could like use it to refuel a fighter jet. Yeah, without having to land. Mm-hmm. You know. Yep. And that's good science fiction. Oh, yeah. You know, because it's like, you know, the best of intentions, mostly, 
get totally fucked yep. <laughs> when and, they're actually and ruin applied. everything. <laughs> um, they do finally wind up getting it on. Yeah. It's kind of a funny scene afterward <laughs> when they're, they're in another hotel room and. Oh, I loved it. It looks like she's just in like an apron and she's trying to be like, I'm the uh, like stewardess yeah, at the yeah. hotel. And then she turns around and it's like, no, back to it. Yeah, yeah. And he spits coffee out and burns himself. <laughs> He's like, come back to bed. <laughs> uh, they continue looking around, driving around, looking for others. Zach is positing that the fabric of the universe is unstable. Right. He gets some readings apart. about the sun. And according to these yeah. readings, it's like pulsating. Yeah, it's like oscillating. And he, he concludes that that's not very good, and they may not have a long time here in this, wherever they are. Other world, parallel Earth, or maybe what they've caused to our Earth. Yes. Uh, so Zach's driving around, and he keeps encountering all these vehicles in the way. Mm-hmm. And his danger sense does not kick in, because it's obvious <laughs> he's being herded somewhere. Obvious. But, but he has no suspicion yeah. at all. Right, because they haven't seen anybody else. Uh, then this big truck comes out and blocks his path. And he gets up with a shotgun to investigate, but a masked man with an Uzi gets to jump on him. Yep. It's a, it's a little uh, gun, rock, paper, scissors thing, right? Like Uzi beats shotgun. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, this newcomer takes his mask off, and he seems he's suspicious but relieved to see Zach. But once, because he's asking Zach, you know, are you alone? He says, yeah. But then the walkie-talkie's going off, so he becomes instantly suspicious. <laughs> Yeah, about the time he says I'm alone, Joanne rings in to be like, hey, where are you? Yeah, You're damn late. it, damn it. Uh, which we should say this guy, uh, Oppie is his name, mm-hmm. played by Pete Smith. Yep. Another great actor. All three of them are just amazing. Yeah, they're good so, actors. Um, he's Maori, right? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Which actually comes into play in, and it, in the movie. It the pulled show. me back two years ago, my friend, to when we did The Nightingale. Yeah. Yeah, sure did. I, I thought about like, that oh. too. Yeah, uh, I was like, I understood this a little because I had the context of learning about all of that when we watched The Nightingale. I wonder if Jennifer Kent had seen this. I don't know. <laughs> be a fun question to ask her. It would be. She'd be like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Oppie takes uh, Zach at gunpoint. Uh, they meet up with uh, Joanne, and he's instantly like, okay, everything seems cool here, you know. And also instantly, and out of the blue... It seems like Joanne and Oppie have a thing for one another. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But they all three embrace. Mm-hmm. They all they all hug each other when they meet up with each other. Uh, yeah, he, he they're talking and he believes that he was dead, and we get like a flashback of him fighting with a mate of his. Yeah, because they because they go into that question of like, what were you doing mm-hmm. when it happened? Mm-hmm. And Oppie actually has a bit more sense of what was going on at the time. Yes, but he was like being both strangled and drowned at the same time. Yeah, and like a little river. Yeah, we don't we don't know why, but he was fighting <laughs> with this guy, and the guy was on top of him, and he was basically underwater, about to die. When yeah, the event happens, mm-hmm. and he sees like a bit of light and stuff, but then the guy's gone. Yeah, guy vanished, but Oppie's fine. Yeah, and it leads uh, Zach to the conclusion that that's why they all survived the effect. Yeah. At that moment when it occurred, they were all in the process of dying. Yeah, because we get a snippet of what happened with Joanne is that she was using a hairdryer and got electrocuted. Yeah, there was like a power surge. Why she was at the hospital, right? And then Zach, it was that he actually, that opening scene now that was kind of puzzling to us, mm-hmm. he was committing suicide with he pills. Was. Yep. Due to the, uh, guilt. The, the guilt over not stopping the project. Mm-hmm. Um, at one point, Joanne wakes up. They're experiencing intermittently some weird visual effects 
going on. Like the event is is getting closer. It's going to happen again. Yeah. yeah, that's the next thing that Zach determines is that it's going to occur again. Mm-hmm. And it becomes sort of a window of hope to maybe change their situation. Yeah. Uh, but we get a lot more like slice of life with the three of them as he's kind of building up on that in the background. Yeah. And we get uh, a love triangle. We do. And things start to devolve quickly because, yes, uh, Zach loves Joanne. Joanne is feeling more feelings toward Oppie, especially she and Oppie have an argument at one point because he says that she saw him singing to a grave outside. Yeah. And he said that he murdered the woman whose grave he was singing to. Yeah, and it really upsets her. Later on, he explains that, well, we find out what happened later, actually. Yeah, because he tells Joanne off screen and Joanne tells Zach. We can just bring it up now because it's relevant, I guess. Sure. Is that, um, okay, this is one of my problems with this movie. I think that this whole backstory is fucking stupid. Okay, how come? So the premise is is that he had a friend, mm-hmm. like a best friend. Mm-hmm. Best friend had a wife. Yes. Wife was in love with Oppie. Yeah. And she confessed to him. Right. And then he's like, no, nah, I don't feel that way for you. Right. And, you're, and you're with my best friend. Yes. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And then she was so uh, heartbroken that she killed herself. Yep. Which is why his mate was trying to kill, kill him. him. Well, you never had a woman kill herself over <laughs> you before? <laughs> it just feels really ham-fisted, man. And like, it, it's too melodramatic for what this movie has been up to this point. I can see your point, but I think it's I think it's a minor issue. I don't think it's that important. I mean, I I infer that this woman probably had mental instabilities, you know. Okay, this is this is Brimstone 2.0. I'm gonna call it Brimstone Gate. Oh fuck you! <laughs> Brimstone is not ambiguous at all. Not one fucking this is, bit. This is, this is Brimstone or the fucking like Wolf Gods. I don't even remember what that movie was now. Wolf Gods. The, the one movie we watched with the uh, Michael picked it with the 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 dude trying to find the missing boy, and the, the dad was like a soldier and he comes back and is like killing everyone. Oh yeah. And, and he had the theory about like there's the two wolf gods. And That's the, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. <clears throat> this is like the third coming of this discussion. Okay, we've had. I don't find it outside the realm of possibility <laughs> that a woman, possibly in you know mental crisis, may have killed herself. We have no context to know that. We don't need to. I just feel like up to the love triangle, it's this really like slow, cerebral, compelling. Well, how about this point? We're almost done. Slice of science fiction. And then it goes like super Hollywood movie. I disagree, but okay. Let us continue. Yes. Uh, So Zach believes that they, uh, he needs to move quickly because he thinks the sun, something, the, the event's going to happen. He, he thinks when the event happens again, it's going to make the sun collapse. Because yes. the closer they get to it, the more the sun is like pulsing out of control. But it's like he wants more information, uh, but the three of them arguing about what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, Zach even insults him. He yeah. says something how he doesn't expect someone like him to understand what he's talking about. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> uh, um. There's also an interesting scene. Well, is it interesting? I don't know. But it's uh, whenever Joanne and Oppie are out on like a morning jog. Do you remember this? Jason's like, they're talking about, she's talking about this theory about like why you like people. Uh huh. And it's this whole thing about like, you, you just do or you don't. And when you do, you find traits to like in the person. And if you don't, you find traits not to like in the person. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's kind of a truism. It can I, be. I think it's a neat idea. Mm-hmm. I, 
the reason I hesitated was that I feel like the film uses that as a justification for their, like, uber romance that's going on. Well, I mean, they're the only people left. There's the three of these people left. It's not like she has a lot of choice, you know? I mean, the sun's <laughs> collapsing. Let's worry about the big picture here. Um, um, which I want to wind back to it because she also had a weird, like, philosophical conversation when it was just her and Zach. Mm-hmm. And it was about uh, the way a person's appearance is and their, like, beauty and stuff. And it was this whole idea about, like, what was it, your smarts? And you could be, like, really smart but be ugly. Right. Or you could be really attractive but not have a like, lot of smarts. Y- your character sort of influences the way you look, basically, yeah. is what she was saying. Yeah. Uh, which Zach thought was a bunch of hogwash. Uh-huh. And he makes, like, a funny joke to her about, like, yeah. oh, well, you must be really smart. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Um, so Zach says the effect's going to happen again around six the next morning mm-hmm. and they're arguing in, in, uh, in one of the houses and things start going weird. Yeah. Um, like they seem to be separated by time and space. Like we see Oppie and Zach both like walking on walls Yeah. and the ceiling and Good things like that. Good visuals there. Yeah. Um, and when that ends, Zach says that that was just a tremor. That's what's that's a little bit of what's to come. Mm-hmm. He says we have to go to the facility where I work, and and maybe we can break down the grid and end this effect. Yeah, he thinks that breaking down the grid that was activated would stop everything. Yes. Uh, so then we get Joanne and Zach. They're driving in the truck, and that's when she tells him about what happened with Oppie about yeah. the, the story. You just don't believe. You know, and maybe he's an unreliable narrator, too. Maybe that's not what happened. Maybe, but... Um, I'm just saying that once I went to look into the novel, the backstory of Oppie there makes a lot more sense. Okay. We'll get into it. All right. Uh, um, so, in the end, they're all kind of, like, pulling in different directions at this point. Yeah. And they just, they decide they have to blow up the yeah. facility. That's the one thing they can't agree on, is that, like, well, let's fix the immediate problem. Right. And sort the rest out later. So, they got this huge truck filled with explosives that Oppie is driving. Mm-hmm. Um, Zach is detecting too much radiation. It's a funny scene because Joanne's riding with Zach and they stop at one point. Mm-hmm. It's when there's that bend with the car. Yeah. Because Oppie almost hits it and it's like a callback to that first scene. Right. Um, but then when they talk for a minute, she hops in the truck with Oppie. Yes. And leaves Zach by himself. Yeah. And he's got all his equipment rigged up in the back. Right. And as they're getting really close to the science facility, all the radiation detectors start going off. Yeah. And, he, and he's trying he's, to get Oppie's attention to stop, and Oppie's being a real fucking asshole because he's yeah. up there with Joanne, and they're being all googly eyes and shit, dick waving. So you're, you, yeah, you're getting the whole <laughs> uh, love triangle thing going here. Um, yeah, but he finally manages to get him to stop to yeah. tell him like, "Hey, we can't go any closer. Right? Uh, it would like literally kill you. There's so much radiation leaking out now." Yeah. So Zach has an idea. Hey, I got this radio control device. I'm going to go back and get it. Maybe we can bring it to the truck and make it drive up there on its own. Yep. He says there's a hill that overlooks the facility that's far enough away. We can come up there and bring the truck in the rest of the way. Simple. Right. He says just give me, what was it, like an hour or two yeah. to run back to that house and get it. We'll still make it in time. But while he's gone, the two of them get it on. Yep. Um, Zach comes back. But he just drives well, on. Well, no, it's, as, as he's still gone, it's in their post, like... Post-coital. Post-coital <laughs> uh, afterglow. 
Oppie's like, yeah, I don't think that the remote thing will work. It just doesn't seem yeah seem like a good idea. Like it would be strong enough. or um, yeah. And he's like, so I'm going to sacrifice myself for you and go and drive the truck. Right. And then she's like, no, let's just let him try first. Mm-hmm. And then they hear the truck. Yeah. And surprise, surprise, Zach has commandeered the truck and decided to sacrifice himself. Mm-hmm. Kind of, I, the vibe I got was like in penance for his guilt. Right. That and the fact that he knows Joanne loves Oppie. Right. There's no and, place for him. Right. You know, so it's like, fuck it. <laughs> uh, and this is a crazy scene. Yeah. So the, he's driving the truck up, but from that weekend ceiling he made before in the basement, the truck <laughs> falls into it. Yeah. He crashes like right into that bathroom. Yep. And so he's stuck there and. The second effect starts to occur. We get the, right. the crazy like visual effects going on. Yeah, yeah. The flashing light. So he detonates the payload. This made me think of the end of Miracle Mile a little bit. Yeah. Because he's in there. The radiation alarms are going off. The effect is happening. And we see him just lift the detonation trigger. Yeah. And just boop, hit it. But then he wakes up on the beach. You know, there's a huge bright red flash. True. Again. Yes, boom. yes. Big flash. Uh, then he wakes up on the beach. Yep. And it's kind of like... I would say like a twilighty kind of time, like end of the day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the sun should be setting. And in the background, we see these big, huge like cloud formations, which are mysteriously like mushroom clouds. Yeah, and there's like half a dozen of them or something. Yeah, and there's this huge ringed planet rising up it, out of the horizon. It's the same pace as the sun at the start, which I thought was cool. Yeah, and it's neat how it happens because at first you see the rings, mm-hmm. and you're kind of like, what? What is this? Yeah, what is that? Yeah. And then when the planet starts to come into view, it's like, oh. Yeah. Oh. And this is the scene that they used on the cover of the video art. And the poster, which I kind of don't like because this is like, it's such a stunning moment. I feel like. And you see the poster and you're waiting for that scene to happen. Yeah. And you haven't seen it yet. And it's at the end. Yeah, I just feel like if you were blindsided by this, it's it would be so because it's it. This is that moment. It's like it's a perfect cinema moment where it's like the visuals, Mm -hmm. the score. Like, everything is right. just, like, hitting you all at once and just, like, blowing you away. But but it is such a cool image, it would be hard not to use it in Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure the art department and, like, the marketing for this film was like, oh. Yeah. But that's that's when the movie ends. That's the end. Oh, there's one little thing that he does that yeah. I think's interesting is that he looks around. Mm-hmm. Joanne and Oppie aren't there. No. And he's got his tape recorder, and he lifts it like he's going to do his next log. Right. And then he just kind of drops it and stares out at that vista. Yeah. Kind of gives over to it, maybe. It gave me chills mm-hmm. when I saw it. Yeah. That be end. That be the film. Okay. Now you said now you had some notes from the novel you wanted to. Let me let me get some general notes and then some info about the novel, and then we can maybe wrap up on what we thought. Okie dokie. So I thought this was cool. This is technically officially the first science fiction film to be produced in New Zealand. Yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, it's wild. Uh, and it's not the only first either for them. It's also the first New Zealand film where all the sound in the movie was performed post-sync at a post-production studio. Ah, Italian style. Yeah. Uh, let's see. I know it's been compared to a 1959 film, The World, The oh, Flesh, yeah. and The Devil. Yep, that's one of the big like comparison pieces. Yeah, apparently critic uh, Jerome Shapiro said it's an unofficial remake. I've never seen it, so I couldn't chime in on that but yeah his book is atomic bomb cinema the apocalyptic imagination on film Ooh. that's from 2002 so that could be something worth looking into uh, 
hit up Amazon after this episode. Yeah. Uh, I Am Legend, I think, is another thing we should bring up. Oh, because, fuck yes. Again, Matheson. Yeah. Last Man classic. on Earth thing. Yeah. And not to mention Night and Dawn of the Dead seem to be mm-hmm. influences, too. Isn't it interesting how if you pull the zombies out, it's still, like, a compelling movie yeah. in a way? Yeah, right. Uh, let's see. Um... Well, let's address the whole 612 thing. Okay, yeah, that, that's, we should start there. Because he wakes up at 612, mm-hmm. and there's another point later on where he's getting frustrated. He throws a, a clock, and it reads 612. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, well, there's Why a Bible, Bible verse, Book of Revelations. Oh, of course. 612. Uh, let's see, something like, there occurs a great earthquake where the sun becomes black as sackcloth of hair and the moon like blood. So it's all about the whole in days and right. all that good stuff. Also interesting, 6 plus 12, 6 plus 1 plus 2 is 9. Oh, you do, you're doing some like, uh, some numerology. I did here. a little numerology. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm into this. Okay. Uh, so number 9 is considered to be powerful by right. numerologist. It represents completion. Mm-hmm. Although not a final ending, more like the fulfillment of one cycle, so that we'll you start can, of another, so that you can prepare to initiate the next one. Right. I, I love concepts like that because there's a lot of like ancient cultures that when you get into like what they believed, they would have like end of the world things, but it wasn't like end of the world, the end of the world. They saw everything as like cyclical. Right. And it would like one time would end, but then the next time would start. Yeah. Cool stuff. It is cool. I love reading into that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Uh, let's see what else here. Uh, apparently, a lot of people had talked about how this movie was made under pressure because there were like uh, like tax concessions that were being lifted, or I guess there was a lot of money stuff behind the scenes right, that were contentious. Yeah. And they were trying to get it made in a certain amount of time, right, to get tax breaks or something. Yeah, yeah, and they, and they were worried they weren't going to make it in time, which is hilarious. Uh, so this whole idea of a worldwide energy grid, the the, the basis for the like the sci-fi part. Mm-hmm. That's kind of similar to what Nikola Tesla was working on back yeah, in the day, which is like right. one of his big like projects that famously kind of didn't ever get to come to fruition, and instead we've got power lines running everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so this is such a deep cut, and I would have never known this, but uh, I pulled it from a few places. So uh, Zach's phone at the beginning, the number that's on it is 396121, and that is the patent number for Tesla's thermal magnetic motor. Uh-huh. Wow, so, that's cool. Just one of those little, like... deep cut right there. deep cut detail. Um, When he goes to stay in the mansion, and it's got all the lavish decorations, there's this really cool M.C. Escher painting Ah, on the wall. Mm -hmm. The title of that painting is Otherworld. Yeah. And it's the one where it's, like, on the moon. Yeah. And it looks to be some sort of a... um, Like a a tower with, like, four Mm -hmm. windows or so. And there's, like, a statue of a bird, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's from different angles... Mm -hmm. It should just be from one angle, from your POV, but you're seeing like three or four different angles. Um, I'll put it in the show notes for sure. Yeah. I like it because it's before we get the parallel Earth suggestion. Right. So it's kind of like a little like little leading teaser. teaser yeah. That you would, you would just have to know the reference to get it. Oh, another big influence on this, I think, is the, the, the very first Twilight Zone episode, Where Is Everybody? Mm-hmm. Have you seen that one? Oh, it, yeah. It's just a man by himself. Legendary. Yeah. Trying to find anyone else, and he's all alone. Though that is not the only Twilight Zone episode I think of, because I also think of, um, and it's this is more goofy, but Time Enough at Last. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Burgess Meredith. Because I love Burgess Meredith. Yeah. Um, so the, the project they're working on, Project Flashlight, there was actually... Not to be confused with Project Flashlight. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's entirely one. different. Uh, that's a pink film. It's coming soon. 
Well, that could be why he was naked in his bed. He was working on Operation Flashlight. Just have one last go before you take yourself out of the world, right? Why not? Um, there was an American defense project called Operation Flashlight Ooh. that was being worked on around the same time they made this film. Interesting. Um, but that operation had nothing to do with energy grids. It was actually about the... Uh, and this is terrible. It was the concept of potentially making low-yield atomic blasts that would be small enough to detonate and destroy a single room, but nothing else. <laughs> Wonderful. Because the American, mil- the American military is fucking psycho. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I mean, they're sitting in a boardroom and they're like, what if we could nuke a single person? Go, go see if we could do that. <laughs> Damn. Um, obviously, that did not pan out. Or did it? Or did it? Mm. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think they found better means than small-scale atomic blasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just become suicided these days. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the crew was very careful during all of the filming to make sure the background scenes were blocked out good for the shots because they wanted to, you know, have that visual of there is no one else. Sure. Despite their very concerned efforts, there are a few mistakes in the film where there were things in the background. Oh, no. I didn't um, notice them. I didn't notice them, but I did go back and kind of track through once I found this list. They're very scant. Um, when Zach's going into the church... In the very far distant background, you can see a white car going by through, through the fog. They, they just missed That's it. That's okay. It was um, parked, and the brakes <laughs> fell, it failed, and it started rolling. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, this was the debut film for Pete Smith, the guy that plays Oppie. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and uh, Bruno Lawrence, the lead, was also in a notable horror film called Death Warmed Up. Love that film. From New Zealand in 84. Okay, so you've seen it. Yeah, okay. yeah. It, I saw it Doesn't back it have at, a second title? Is it like Deathline or... I don't remember. Maybe I'm thinking of something else. I think I'm thinking of Raw Meat. Yeah, that's Raw Meat. Um, but I saw this back in the day, and it left an impression on me. But what really left an impression on me was the fucking artwork on the front of that fucking oh God, tape. Because yeah. it, it, it had a uh, like a skeleton in a doctor's gown about yeah, to yeah, cut yeah. into a very live and awake woman with a scalpel. Dude, that literally infiltrated my nightmares when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. I'm looking at the poster right now. Hey, it's yeah. on Tubi, by the way. So Yeah, I might have to go back and rewatch it. Yeah, I guess I was just tying it up with raw meat by accident. Mm-hmm. My bad. It's all right. Um, this film was nominated for eight New Zealand Film and TV Awards. And it ended up winning in all categories. Whoa. So a big deal over there. And this is my last little fun thing. Um... There was a big list, uh, 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die. I think it was put together by Steven Schneider. Mm-hmm. Quiet Earth is on that list. So that's nice, nice. Pretty cool. Apparently, he's not, uh, you're not the only one that thinks it's a pretty, pretty worthwhile endeavor. Now, let me get into the novel. All right. So, some differences. The project is an energy grid thing. It's about doing uh, gene manipulation and they were wanting to activate dormant genes hidden in the humans or splicing with animal genes through the use of high-frequency sound waves and radiation. And the goal of that was to try to, like, basically evolve mankind and make them, like, stronger, faster, better, more superior. Mm -hmm. And that's where the military angle comes in of, like, they were going to use it to make, like, super soldiers, effectively, or things like that. Slight change, no big deal. Um, I'm not sure how that would lead to people disappearing, (laughs) though. 
I mean, maybe the novel is completely different, but. Um, so let's see other things that happen when uh, Zach's by himself. There's a few weird scenes where he sees like these weird hybrid monsters that are like two different animals that have been fused together. Ooh, that makes me think of Annihilation. Yeah, that, that was what I felt when I was reading the synopsis. I don't yeah. know. Maybe in the novel it feels different, but I mm. uh, didn't have time to go read the whole novel, you know, before <laughs> this episode. So. Right. Um, there's no Joanne in the novel. She's okay. not a part of it. It starts out and it's all Zach, and it goes with him for a while, and then it fades to be about Oppie for a while, and okay. you just get him and his backstory and everything to do with him. And his background is that he is actually a soldier. Mm. He fought in like I think the Vietnam War is what they set up, and that's where like a lot of his like his strength and his skills and stuff have come from, and like what he's good at. Um, there's some interesting scenes once they link up. It's the same thing that kind of bump into one another, and then initially you're hostile, but then make peace and try to figure out what's going on. And pretty much the back half of the film, there's just no Joanne. Um. But there are some interesting scenes, like uh, they're staying near the ocean, and Oppie goes diving for shellfish. Because uh, they find that in the ocean, there are still like some, like there's fish and some mm. creatures they can get to, to eat and stuff. Interesting. Um, but one of the days that he's doing that, Oppie kind of plays a joke on Zach, where he pretends like he's drowning. He's like, oh, come help me, come help me. Mm. And when Zach runs out there, he kind of just gets a weird feeling and decides to like hold him down under the water huh. and actually starts to like drown him a little bit. And it becomes this whole fight. And in the end, um, Zach kind of breaks down and he reveals it was like, he was really living this traumatic experience where you find out a little bit of Zach's backstory that we don't get in the film, which is that he had a son and the son, uh, Depending on the synopsis, it was a little different. It was like some said he had like some kind of mental problem. One said he was autistic. I'm, I'm not got a gun in that fight because I've not read the novel, so mm -hmm. I can't say. But right. his son was challenged in some way and accidentally drowned in the bathtub. And it's haunted Zach since uh, that occurred. And okay. due to that happening, his relationship with his wife fell apart. Mm. And it became like his job was his only thing. Okay. Um, the whole thing of like the guilt of the job is still in there too. That but... leads some credence to my theory that that was maybe his ex-wife's house <laughs> that he went to. Yeah, perhaps. Um, and in that moment, Zach says he felt like somehow Oppie knew and he was like mocking him mm. by pretending to drown. Um, and so they both kind of have this realization like Zach knows he's becoming unhinged. Oppie's like, oh, I got to watch out for this guy now. I uh, don't know what he's uh, capable of. Uh, so eventually, they go through a bunch of different theories about what happened. Um, but Zach starts to realize that their relationship, their friendship, has fallen apart. And that eventually it's going to break down and one of them is going to kill the other one. <laughs> and so they both separately decide, like, I'm going to be the one to kill the other one first. Hmm. And there's even a part where, like, Zach tries to put together this whole thing with sleeping pills to kill him, but then doesn't go through with it. And as it's ramping up to, like, the two of them showing down and one of them killing one another, a woman does come into the picture, but when they find her, she's injured. There was like a wreck. I guess the assumption is she was driving and like crashed. And so they're trying to save her life so she doesn't die because she's in like critical condition. But neither one of them really know what to do because neither of them have those skills. And there's a bit of debate about like the best way to go forward. And so ultimately she kind of wastes away and dies. Mm. And they're unable to save her. Um, we get some backstory where Oppie brings up, like, he's been reading the Bible. 
and he brings up to him the 612 clock thing. Because I guess Oppie brings that up a lot, that like a lot of the clocks are stopped at 612. And so the whole like revelations thing that you spilled, mm-hmm. that's in the novel like presented from oh, Oppie okay. to Zach as like a theory. Um, Was that the same um, uh, verse that Dan Aykroyd quoted in Ghostbusters? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> um, but at this point, like Oppie's really jazzed on this idea, so Zach thinks he's losing it, so he pulls a gun on him. And then that makes Oppie lose it because the woman just died too. And so they go into like a full-on battle where they're trying to kill each other. They're shooting at one another. Uh, one of the synopsis I read even mentioned they're like chucking grenades at each Jesus. other. <laughs> uh, eventually, Oppie just kind of gives up and lets Zack kill him. And so then Zack's all by himself. He goes back to the lab to try to figure out some things about like the project. Uh, he breaks into like Perrin's like office, his personal office. And he learns that they were doing surveillance on Zach because they didn't trust him. They thought he was going to spoil the project and like leak it to the public. Mm. Um, and then also he gets some information where he thinks that like Zach's involvement in the project messed with his DNA. Like they did it like without him knowing. And that the reason his son had like whatever mental problem going on was because of that. Okay. Which like devastates Zach and destroys him. Um, and then of course he like blames himself, mm-hmm. kind of get that same stuff still the same. Um, and then let's see what else it gets into. Um, we find out the same thing about like he took the the dose of sleeping pills when the effect happened and that made him stay. Um, blah blah blah. Oh, and then the big reveal in the novel is that. The reason the effect happened is because Zack sabotaged the project in a way that he thought was going to kill Perrin, and he didn't realize that it was going to do all this other stuff. Okay. And so he finds out the whole thing was his fault. Uh... And then, so at the end, he kind of accepts his guilt for, like, everything was his fault. Um... And it gets into a thing of like, oh, maybe what he's in now is just like a purgatory or something for like the the, the evils he's gotten up to. Or mm-hmm. uh, perhaps it's one of those things where like humanity did evolve, but he didn't. So he's left behind and da da da, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in the end, he goes back to that hotel that he started in and he jumps from the top of it to kill himself. And just as he's about to hit, he suddenly wakes up and he's back in the motel. And he freaks out because he doesn't know if that was a dream, if everything that happened was a dream, mm-hmm. or, or what's going on. And then he picks up his watch to like look and see what time it is, and it's stuck, and it's stuck on 612. Uh, and then it's kind of... Yeah, groundhog type thing. Yeah. <clears throat> it's a, sort of like a time loop yeah. deal. Mm. Okay. Yeah. I'm glad this didn't end like that. It, it's, it's a much more downer ending. Yeah. Yeah. And a little little messy, I would say. Also a bit more cliched, I think. I, I like that a, uh, the quieter the film is a little vaguer. Right. On, like, what happened. Yeah. Why it happened. Yeah. It reminds me too much of, like, Dead of Night. Yeah. 
the novel ending does. How everything is just like a big Mobius strip. <laughs> yeah. Forced to relive it over and over. I like those kind of things, but they have to be... I don't know. The plot has to serve that in a neat, yeah. a neat way. Right. Okay. So. So there you go. That's some connections from the novel. Some maybe gives us a little more context. Some, they clearly just took it in their own direction. Right. Okay. Cool. Um, and then before we get into air thoughts, my last little give in here. So the final scene is, of course, mysterious and weird, right? We don't really know what happened. Sure. Um, so the writer slash producer, Sam Pillsbury, had this to say in a DVD commentary. To us, we all thought it was quite simple. I mean, our intention was just that what happened was he died at the moment of the effect for a second time, and now he's found himself in another world. So what the hell's he going to do now? Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then he went on to say that um, he kind of made jokes of this, but he said the director... Uh, Murphy was a Catholic or maybe a lapsed Catholic. So it could not be that. And it may could have well been something like he's in a purgatory and it's this trap cycle that he's going to relive again and again until he works out the karma of the things he's done. Right. And he said, um, anyways, either way, it's enigmatic and you take it either way. And to him, he thought that was the best way to end the film. Yeah. That's very cool. Very cool ending. Very cool visual. So, should I go first on my thoughts? Or? Uh, I, I had to run through the novel stuff, so I'll let you go first. Okay. You can take the stage a little bit. Um, well, I hadn't seen this since I was a teenager. Yes. But I would say, for the most part, it holds up pretty damn well. Mm-hmm. I think there's a reason why it's stuck in my memory. Um, I think it's pretty effective. It's, uh, it's not a perfect movie, by any means. Uh, Bruno Lawrence is fantastic. I think all the actors are great, but Lawrence really carries the movie. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, and I'm a sucker for that whole sort of last man on earth mm-hmm. sort of thing, you know. Um, oh, we forgot to mention like the Omega Man. Well, that's still kind of like Matheson's, based on Matheson's <laughs> I Am Legend. So. Um, yeah. I, I figured with I Am Legend, if you chain off of that, you'll get yeah, all Omega Man and all that crap. Ones. Um, I like the story. I like the fact that you don't really know what's going on. It's a little right. bit of ambiguous. I think it's unique, too, because how many other films are like a we were dying and blasted into another reality? Right. Right? Yeah. Because so many, when you get into these kind of films, like so many are the same, like, it was a nuclear explosion and mm-hmm. now the earth is ruined. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is really like, I can't think of another film that does this take. I'm, there might be. I'm sure there is. There Probably. has to be. But that I've seen and know, no. Um, I think that it is. Oh, well, let me ask you this. Um, you said it wasn't perfect. So what's not perfect about it? What's not perfect. Um, I, I, I agree with you that it becomes a bit less interesting once other characters are introduced. Mm -hmm. Although that's kind of a, a given that's going to happen at some point. (laughs) But I also think it's the point because I think this movie also references, um, no exit. Mm, okay. Jean Paul Sartre. Because mm-hmm. uh, hell is other people. That that play also has three characters. Right. And oh, that's a good reference. Yeah. Yeah. And how much of other people can you really take? You know, you're relieved to see someone else alive after all this, but then you spend time with them, and and they're the only people you get to be around for twenty four seven. Right. And maybe they're not great people. Maybe you don't really like them. Uh, I mean. 
that's like that old thing of like if you're in a, a relationship early on, it's like, yeah, we'll try living with them. Right. And yeah. So you feel then. I mean, we're social creatures and we need to be around other people, but at the same time, other people drive us fucking crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so I like I like how it explores that. Uh, I think it's a good tight little movie. It's not perfect. It's not uh, you have to see that. Like I don't think you have to see this before you die. Oh, I wouldn't put it on that list. Wow. But I do think so it's, you could think of a thousand and one other. Movies? I might be able to. Okay. I would. I would. I wouldn't. Ar- <laughs> I don't argue this being on that list. Okay. Okay. I, I think if you're a fan of science fiction, if you like the whole Twilight Zone thing, mm-hmm. uh, if you like 80s films, check this out, definitely. You know, you owe it to yourself. And even the streaming version I watched on Tubi looked pretty damn good. Oh, yeah. It was probably maybe from the Arrow. I'm pretty sure it was. Uh, print? Yeah. Uh, and briefly, something we didn't touch on was this director, Jeff Murphy. Uh, he went on to direct uh, Young Guns 2. Oh, I know one that he happened to go on to direct, which was Under Siege 2. <laughs> Under Siege 2, uh, Free Jack. He did Free Jack. He was also the uh, second unit director in the Lord of the Rings movies. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Kind of cool. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Good director, I think. He is a very good director. Which he would have done more, maybe. Yeah. It's, it's a shame he didn't. He came to Hollywood and tried to make it, and they just chew you up and spit you out. Tale as old as time. Yeah, seriously. Um... So if you log on to Letterboxd and you got to drop a star rating. I'd give it a three and a half. Oh, okay. Yeah. Hmm, I, don't, I don't think it's a classic. I think it's well worth watching. Um, I, I see what you mean. I think it's a little, like the first half is, is almost pure brilliance. Mm-hmm. Then once you bring in other people, it gets messy. I think that's the point it's supposed to be. <laughs> um... But could it not be satisfying? Could you not have made it in a way where it was satisfying in that part? That's my question. Because I think of other examples and it's like... Yeah, I think you could have. You're like, right. Like Dawn of the Dead brings in more people in a satisfying way. Yeah. But I, I do think it is supposed to be frustrating to an extent. Hmm. I really do. Perhaps. Like the whole jealousy angle. Because hmm. you, you, would, you would feel that. That hmm. would actually happen. That is a thing that would happen. Sure. I'll um, give you that. So I buy it. Uh, yeah, at the end of the day, I give it three and a half stars. I think it's a very ambitious movie. I think it's a very well-made movie. Uh, the performances alone are worth a watch. It's thought-provoking. I dig it. Cool. What do you think? So, so we know I'm mixed. I set that up. Yeah. I, I fucking love the first half of this film. I think that is like brilliant. It's perfect. If I only saw that part and someone told me to somehow still judge it, I would just go ahead and give it five stars. <laughs> it's like the music, again, throughout the whole film, the music is yeah. just fucking amazing. Right. Uh, again, John Charles, wish he would have done more. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bruno Lawrence carries the film. He makes the film. Everything that's magical about it, like, and the other two are great. I'm not diminishing their performances. Yeah, they're good. But, like, if he were anyone else, this film would not work, I don't yeah, think. It's the way, his the way movie. That it, is, it is yeah. his movie. Um, that's a lot of pressure, but man, he did it. Um, the ending is phenomenal. Again, mm-hmm. that's another five-star thing. Just that visual. That's like one of those all-time, like, if you had to say, like, what's great about cinema? And you could just show someone that clip, and it's like, Phew, it's powerful. It's, it's striking. Right. Even if you don't know what's going on, it just, like, it gives you these feelings. Yeah, it's, it's like a great painting. Yeah. 
Um, however, again, that back half of the film, when they bring in the other people, like for me, that really pulled me out of like the, the magic I was in up to that part. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I feel like both of them are a little undercharacterized. Like we don't know a lot about them. We don't know a lot about Zach either, but the time that's spent with him, you feel like you know him in a way that you don't feel like with the other two. And again, maybe that is the point. Because maybe we're supposed yeah, to be... Yeah, he's our audience surrogate. We're supposed to be... But it was a way where, like, once they started doing things or deciding things, it just felt like it was just, like, all over the place. And I was mm-hmm. like, I don't get where these are coming from. Again, I, I think that Oppie's backstory here is, like... I have a hard time stomaching that one. Sure, maybe you're right. Maybe maybe the wife was crazy, but... Or he's lying. Um, That was where <laughs> I looked to the novel. And, like, okay, the fact he was, like, a Vietnam soldier... That background like kind of tracks better to me in a way. Yeah. Um, whereas like the 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 one in the movie here is just like I'm just like what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> I even wrote in my notes. Make sure you mention this as a brimstone moment for you. Um, oh my god. And then so this whole final phase with the love triangle that part was like a huge slog for me. Again, to me it felt like they were just going like big Hollywood. Let's have the love triangle. And I'm just like, why why are we going down this road of all the roads we could go down? Because that's probably um, what would actually happen. Because humans are petty and stupid. <laughs> and, and again, like her attraction to Oppie, it feels very just like cinema magic moment kind of thing. And I guess maybe they try to bandage that over with her like, I think you just like the people you like. And I was like, I don't know, man. Again, she doesn't have a lot of choice here. <laughs> um, so it leaves, leaves me like super mixed because I loved the first part so much. Mm-hmm. And then the first part I was so like out of it until... That little final moment when I was like, "Oh man, I'm back in." Brush your own back. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, and I wanted to mention Day of the Dead because online everyone's like, "Oh, the Dawn of the Dead comparisons." I got some Day of the Dead vibes, which I know that's they came out the same year. Yeah. Um, particularly the opening segments of Day of the Dead where they're like in the city going yeah, by, calling for um, people. I just kept waiting for Zach to do like the hello. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I can't understate. I can't state enough. The score just amazing, great. Um, the score even like it feels like the score should be in like a huge Hollywood movie but yeah. then it's attached to this much smaller film and it just really it really like elevates it to me Um, I know this movie was an influence on Peter Jackson too I could see that which is why he got him to <laughs> I could see that for sure yeah, work on Lord of the Rings Um, so if I weigh that out and like I, I loved 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 the first half and mm-hmm. the second half I was really really like I don't know what's going on with this film anymore and I don't know if I'm into it so when I, I factor that back and forth, I would give this a solid and confident three. Okay. Which I thought you're it was interesting. That yeah, that you're 3.5. Yeah. We're actually a lot closer than I thought we would be mm-hmm. uh, as we talked through this. Um, I think that if you like these types of movies that are about like a potential way the world could end type mm-hmm. deal, I think it is worth seeing. Now, I don't know if it's like a put it into your yearly rotation of stuff you're going to revisit all the time. Right. That yeah. I don't know. Probably not. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, maybe like every 30 years like I have. Yeah, perhaps, <laughs> perhaps that's the, the, the you know cycle you want to be on for it. But um, a lot of fun. A lot of There's so much good here that I think even with the bad, it's still worth watching. It's still worth talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're a collector like me, it's worth having. This is one now that I know definitely the next time there's an arrow sale somewhere that'll be on my radar to catch and put into the cart sure. and pick up. Cool. E- even with my hangups, I still, yeah. I still want to own it. Awesome. If nothing else for just like, oh, that first path is so good. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So there we are. We actually ended up pretty about the same close. On that. Yeah. I'm, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I was worried there. <laughs> I actually thought you, yeah, I, th- I thought that was when it would lose you when yeah. the other characters were introduced. 
Because I, I, I felt a little lost then, too. It wasn't quite as compelling. Mm-hmm. But. But. So we've talked about how the world might end. Mm-hmm. We've, we've questioned that through science fiction. Yes. So for our next film that we're going to do, we're going to look at another, I guess, aspect of what science fiction can be. And that's space. Yeah. We're going to go to space. Final Frontier. We may have a special guest. I'm not going to jinx us anymore. Right. This is their pick, which we'll get into deeper on next time if they join us. If not, eh, it's what it is. Yeah, we'll see. What Scheduling, all that kind of stuff. But in that respect, we're going to be talking about, from 2009, directed by Duncan Jones, Moon. M-O-O-N. That spells moon. Just moon. Now, I've never seen this. I have. Uh, I've had it highly recommended to me many times, mm-hmm. so I'm glad that... It shuffled in here. Yes. Do you want to say any preamble about it since our guest isn't here to speak for it? Um, not really, but I will I will echo the concern he had that it does have a uh, voice done by Kevin Spacey. Oh, come on. So if you don't even <laughs> if you don't even want to hear the guy talk, maybe tune out. But um, it again, I go here. I, we try to separate the art from the artist. I fall back on my argument that just because Kevin Spacey is fucking terrible. Let's not diminish the work that everyone else did. I agree. On the film. I agree completely. And, and we can we can simply say fuck that guy, and then say here's this movie that, yeah. like, hundreds of other people worked on. Right, right. Um, and it's it's a guy on the moon, right? That's all I really. It's know a about. dude on the moon. Yep. Um, I'm told I shouldn't know much more than that. So yeah, it's it, the less you know, the better. Cool. All right. Well, um, yeah. Look forward to Moon next time, and maybe a special guest. We'll see. We're kind of trying that now because that was fun with Chris, mm-hmm. kind of bringing in someone for the middle pick. Yeah, uh, we'll see if we can add keep some, doing that. Maybe some variety. Nice. Um, you got anything else on this one? That's it, man. That's all I got. Well, it's been fun. I'm oh, tired. <laughs> <laughs> um, thanks for listening. Thanks for sticking it out with this one. I know the, those first ones where we do this overview are always long, so we appreciate uh, if you're dedicated to reach this little end spot here. And if you are, we love you, man. It's cool. Thank you. Yeah. Um, keep tuning in. Hit us up on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. Let us know your favorite sci-fi films. Let us know your favorite sci-fi films. If you were going to pick a post-apocalyptic one, what would you go with? Yeah. What would be your uh, favorite to throw out there at someone? We're always looking for film recommendations because every block when we finish it, we check out one of the films that you suggest. And if we do it, we will, if you're willing, mail you a genre exposure sticker. Mm-hmm. Um, we just need an address and I'll reach out to you to get that, to get that in motion. We're almost ready to send out the first wave. It's going to be one fun. of the few cool people in this world to have a genre exposure sticker. It I can mean, be yours. Think about it. And yours alone. It's a conversation starter. Um, <laughs> and it's totally voluntary. So if you don't want us to have your address for some reason, or you don't have a PO box or something you can use, mm-hmm. that's cool too. We're definitely not going to show up at your house with spookies and a uh, winter beast <laughs> and a uh, devil story. Unless you want us to. And make you watch it in some kind of hellish trilogy marathon while we stare at you and make sure you're paying attention to the film. Um, Again, unless you want unless us Unless you want that. That, uh, you know, if we ever tried to have a Patreon, maybe that's the top tier, like the $1,000 tier. Is, we will capture you. See, and, that sounds less like a reward and more like a threat. So Some people. Those sort of things are appealing. True. All that being said... You have been listening to Genre Exposure. Bye, everyone. Take care.
You're listening to the Prescribed Films Podcast Network, home to hundreds of hours of free podcast entertainment. The shows on this network all have a common goal, providing you with the best discussions about movies and other forms of entertainment media. The PFPN hopes to fill your ear holes with audio joy. Visit our website with links to all the other amazing shows at www.thepfpn.com. Thanks for listening.